Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. See one, two, one, one, five. We appreciate the folks that are listening at alternative sites and maybe even the phone bank. Live. If you're interested in the phone bank, uh, there is information on the website there. You can call in, listen on your phone. Uh, for those of you that have unlimited minutes, that might be an option for you. Might save you a little bit of money. But we thank you for tuning into the broadcast. Let me mention a couple of things. Got a number of announcements to make before we get back into our study on the American tyranny. But uh, I want to mention several prayer requests this evening. Continue to pray for little Helen Rose as she recovers from childhood leukemia. Doing very well at this point in time. Shelby, our friend in Pennsylvania. Um, she is doing well with her battle against cancer. Lots of cancer out there, folks. Pay attention to what you eat and uh, try to put things in this temple that God has given you that benefited instead of being detriments. But anyway, be praying for Shelby. Continue to pray for our friend Deborah uh, down there north of uh, Asheville, North Carolina, as she recovers from four-way bypass surgery. Pray the Lord give her the strength back that she needs. Also, I think we mentioned on last week the Schmids, S-C-H-M-I-D-S, uh, Mrs. Schmid's uh, mother, 83 years old and just about to take her last breath and go on off to be with the Lord. Be praying for the family. It's always a difficult time when those things take place. And I know that they would appreciate your prayers. Also, a friend of ours uh, by the name of Betsy. Betsy uh, was a, a part of the youth group when I was growing up years ago in the t- as a teenager in our home church. And Betsy tonight is in a major hospital in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, she came down with the flu several weeks ago and uh, suffered for about a week with it, finally went to the doctor. He immediately put her in the hospital, and uh, something happened. We're not exactly sure what it is, but uh, her body began to shut down. They transferred her to a St. Louis hospital, and four of her organs uh, are shutting down on her. They have her on life support. Betsy's only 59 years old, has a handful of children. Betsy and her husband lost a son. And that war over there, uh, you call it what you want over there in the Middle East, but uh, he uh, died as a hero. And uh, matter of fact, one of the overpasses down there, Lebanon, Missouri, on the main highway is dedicated to she and her husband's son. Uh, Betsy's a wonderful girl, but struggling for her life this evening. I would appreciate if you would uh, be praying for her. Then let me remind you several other things. First of all, our new email address, covenanter at zoho.com, covenanter at zoho.com. Spelled just as it sounds, uh, C-O-V-E-N-A-N-T-O-R. And I'd love to hear from you. Lord willing, be praying for my wife and I. Uh, on Monday, about 2 in the afternoon, we're going to fly out of Cincinnati Airport and fly out in, to uh, Payson, Arizona. Be there for about 10 days. We'll be there at the Payson First Baptist Church with uh, Pastor Anthony Grissy, the pastor, uh, co-pastor of the broadcast that takes place uh, here on Monday night in this same time slot, and looking forward to that. Then in March, uh, the 12th through the 15th, we'll be with Pastor Jason Burton and the people of the Cornerstone Historic Baptist Church in Union City, Indiana. Uh, regular services uh, on Sunday, 9-15, 10-30, And then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday night, 6 and 7.30 p.m. Uh, we'd love to see you up there. Come on up there and be with us. Uh, I'm sure that 
Pastor Burton, I know he's already announced it on his program, but we wanted to announce it here uh, and encourage you as well. Uh, then on April the 16th, that's Easter Sunday. Now, we believe in Resurrection Sunday. We don't uh, worship Ishtar or any of the fertility goddesses. But on that Sunday, Pastor Ben Wharton's going to be with us. That's Sunday through following Wednesday. That's the 16th through the 19th. Uh, Brother Wharton is almost 80 years old, still preaching, and uh, still bench-pressing about 450 pounds. He is the hoss of a man and a tremendous preacher. We're looking forward to having him. We try to have him with us every year. And then, Lord willing, in the month of October, we'll be out there at the Old Paths Historic Baptist Church in Tualatin, Oregon, with uh, Pastor Dan Zyke. Looking forward to a meeting out there with them. I believe it's about the first weekend uh, of that month of October. We'll get you more info since that's a ways off. But uh, we would love to have your prayers. If you happen to be in those areas, I have a dear friend I spend a lot of time on the phone with that lives up just across the border, oh, I don't know, 100 miles or so into the state of Washington. I'd love to have him come down there and meet him face-to-face. I'd even buy him a meal, and I'm sure we'd have a good time of fellowship. Matter of fact, he is one of the individuals that has his own broadcast on American Voice Radio. I'll let you try and figure out who that might be. But uh, we're planning on being out there and looking forward to it very much. We've been talking about America's descent into tyranny. I don't even have time this evening, folks, to get into all the foolishness that's taking place in our society right now. Uh, some people fail to acknowledge the fact that they have lost and um, – well, this is for that's for another broadcast. Uh, we're talking about this American, American tyranny. My my purpose is not necessarily to make you afraid. If you are afraid, then you probably have reason to be. But I want you to understand that this milk toast, soft soap, limp wristed, spaghetti spined preaching that's been taking place so much in this country for the last fifty years or so has not helped prepare American society for what's coming. It especially has not helped prepare the American Christian for what's coming. I'm talking about a Bible believer, but more than that, I'm talking about somebody who's put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. He is the only way to heaven. He told us in John 14:6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If you were fortunate enough to hear Brother Burton speaking last night on his broadcast, you got a clear presentation of the gospel. Your greatest need this evening, if you're not prepared to meet Jesus Christ, is to put your faith and trust in him. Everybody else is a loser. That's simply the truth of the matter. But our society is not prepared for what's coming, especially the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we want to issue a warning. We have been dealing for months now on this issue of the coming American tyranny. Now, in the coming American tyranny, as in all tyrannies, the tyrants will be far outnumbered by their loyal followers. So it'll behoove the tyrants and their loyal followers to create and engender and utilize the spirit of fear to their advantage. Now, I meant to say a moment ago, they will be far outnumbered, the tyrants will, by their subjects. So it's to their advantage to get control of the population. And by the way, friends, that's what they will do. Fear may manifest itself at different levels. For example, if a person speeds through a school zone, he or she may fear being stopped by a police officer and being issued a speeding ticket. That's a relatively low level of fear. 
If a man or woman fails to pay his or her income tax for several years, he may fear being sent to federal prison for years. Now, that's a higher level of fear. Tyrants, however, know how to manipulate their subjects through fear. One method is that the application and nature of punishment for specific wrongdoing or disobedience to the tyranny may not be spelled out or made known or even published. The man who sped through the school zone understood that he would likely get a speeding ticket. The man who failed to pay his income tax understood that more than likely he would do some jail time for it unless, of course, he was a nationally known politician. But in a tyranny, the tyrant often purposely refrains from designating a specific punishment for a specific crime. Such a method of operation can not only engender fear, but it can exacerbate that fear. If a person never knows what his punishment may be for committing any crime or violation of the rules, then that person gets scared. If the punishment could be anything from a monetary fine to execution, no matter what the crime, then fear becomes a terrible tool for the tyrant. Now, let me give you an apt contemporary illustration of this application of fear, and that's the declaration by the U.S. Attorney General under Barry Barack Hussein Sotero Obama that any United States citizen who speaks hurtful or hateful or degrading language against the religion of Islam or against Muslims will be subject to prosecution by the U.S. Attorney General's office. Now, friends, such a comment is designed to engender fear and to facilitate submission by those over whom the Attorney General believes she has power and control. The law unlawfulness of such a pronouncement, i.e. abrogation of the right to free speech, by the way, that's verified by the First Amendment, is being ignored or perverted. A second method tyrants use to create fear in the hearts of their subjects is not to name crimes. Tyrants usually name or identify crimes in a general way, but purposefully leave out the specifics. For example, the coming American tyranny may identify a class of crimes such as uh, crimes against the state. Well, a crime against the state could be just about anything. The designation of the crime is left up to the tyrant or one of his underlings to identify. The USA Patriot Act, passed after 9-11 and reauthorized several times since then, are examples of this policy of tyrants to avoid naming specific crimes and specific punishment for those crimes. Furthermore, and for your enlightenment, the USA Patriot Acts provide for the apprehension of, incarceration of, and disappearance of persons never to be seen or heard from again without ever naming a crime that they may have committed. Now, friends, think about it. This is genuine tyranny. Are you paying attention? Are you listening to me tonight? People living in a tyranny are fearful because well, they never know if what they did or are about to do will be considered a crime. And they never know what punishment may come 
if they are caught doing whatever it is the tyrant may consider to be a crime at any given time. Tyrants who act in this way may be thought to be insane. Well, maybe they are. But truly, this operating principle is calculated to produce fear among the people, thereby facilitating control. In America today, there is a baseline being laid for this very particular fear-producing method to be brought to bear. It's through the public campaign to induce people to inform on others. Hitler and the Nazi Party were very successful at using this weapon in Germany from about 1933 to 1945. In today's pre-tyranny America, we're urged to report anything we see or anything we hear that seems to be suspicious. Well, now what could be or might be suspicious? The manufactured and hyped-up threat of terrorists and terrorism since 9-11 serves as the nexus for this campaign to get people to inform on one another. It will be no difficult task to transfer this idea of informing from pre-tyranny America to an America under tyranny in what I believe to be the very near future. People will never know, A, if and when they're being watched by their neighbors or their friends or their relatives or their co-workers. B, if the activity they're engaging in, whether innocent or not, may be reported. C, if what they did or said may be interpreted as being a crime. D, if or when they may be taken into custody by the secret police for doing whatever may have been anonymously reported, and E, what might happen to them if they are arrested. This, dear friend, is a situation which causes much fear among a population of people living in a tyranny. Americans are being incrementally and mentally and emotionally prepared today to participate in this kind of society under the coming American tyranny. Another method of producing fear among a population, which is always used by tyrants, is the injection of a constant threat to the nation, either from without or from within. Hitler used it successfully, as the German people were continually stirred up with the manufactured threat to them that their country, posed by the greedy Jews, the totalitarian communists, and the barbaric Slavic hordes or Slavic hordes were after them. Well, since 9-11, the American public, yes, even the entire world, friend, has been immersed in fear from terrorists, individuals, terrorists, by name and reputation since 9-11, have been identified for us by our government and molded into specters of boogeymen for us all to fear and to hate. Organizations, i.e. al-Qaeda, ISIS, Hamas, the Muslim Brotherhood, and so on and so on, have been put before us daily as groups to be feared and fearful of. Even entire governments, which is interpreted as peoples, by the way, like Iran, Syria, Libya, and Yemen, are denoted for us as rogue nations, capable of and responsible for supporting international terrorism. 
bringing great fear into our hearts. Now, critical thinking, logic, and an understanding of the times will lead us to reject the fear purposely manufactured for us and injected into our daily routines. But sadly, most Americans in 2017 A.D. do not think critically. They do not think logically, nor do they have an understanding of the times. So by plan, we are made to be fearful of this inside or outside threat, which the neo-tyrants in our government are using to their benefit. That benefit will accrue over time as it serves as the basis for total tyrannical control within the borders of our once free land. Fear among Americans must result from either perceived or real threats of danger. The tyranny in process, or excuse me, progress, I should say, which we may call our national government, is providing and will continue to provide in more wicked ways and manners those threats of danger which will produce the desired level of fear among us. Those specific threats of danger will range from rumor and suspicion and innuendo manufactured for our consumption to actual physical application. This operating principle is nothing new having been used successfully in many nations around the world for over 100 years, especially by communists who wish to become tyrants. Current examples of both these methods of fear are, number one, a growing government-sponsored alien invasion whose members are considered capable of all kinds of terrorist acts against Americans. Number two, another outbreak of a killer flu or virus capable of creating millions of deaths among us. Number three, a coming national financial collapse. Number four, regular but random mass shootings across the land by deranged, insane, gun-toting terrorists. Number five, bombs exploding in public places or during public activities like the Boston Marathon bombing. As the threshold for tyranny grows closer in time, these acts or threatened acts designed to create fear among the American public will increase in frequency, expand in type or kind, and become more deadly and gruesome. By the time the American tyranny reveals itself for what it is, the American public will have been made to be sufficiently fearful that obedience to even a desire for the tyranny will be a foregone conclusion. That's part of the devil's conspiracy against America. Isaiah 14, verse 12. More signs for consideration? Are you listening to me? Are you awake? When America finally sheds her feigned, pretend fear of Almighty God, replacing him with the God of forces, there will be no further need for her or her people to maintain the facade of righteousness, which this nation has put forth for world consumption for many, many years. When America turns from God, eschewing her lip service to him, and embraces the God of forces, then the tyranny that we're talking about will come in like a flood. Simultaneously, among the population, the strongholds of the God of forces will be loosed.
Friends, they're going to be exalted. They're going to be pursued with frenzied, frantic fanaticism. Say that three times quickly. These forces will no longer be satisfied to wait in the wings. They're, they're going to become center stage in American life. The forces of hate and death and covetousness and greed and sensual lust and drunkenness and drug abuse and sorcery and witchcraft and, or craft and ultimately Satan worship will spring up as a garden of noxious weeds, if you please, within the America that you and I now call home. These strongholds will follow the devil-inspired principle of replacing love with hate, calling it love. They will put dark for light and evil for good. The 19 adjectives describing men in the perilous times of the end days, 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5, will be upon us. As it says, in the last days, perilous times will come. Men shall be lovers of their own selves covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. Friends, the tyranny of American government accompanied by the God-hatred of American men and women will create a despicable, degraded society. This American society of the near pre-tribulation future will step off to lead the world into accepting the strong delusion which God will send upon the whole entire earth at the rise of the Antichrist beast, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 11. Friends, it's likely that you and I live to see, to understand, to know, to experience at least the beginnings of this perverted, pernicious America. I want you to know, friends, tonight that it's coming. It's already on the horizon. This spirit of the Antichrist, which... Paul spoke of in New Testament times, and the book of Jude makes reference to, as well as many others, is not in the future. It is here now. And you and I, as we allow ourselves in this American society, are slowly but surely being prepared for the tyranny that's to come. There's going to come a day when men will turn their backs on their mates. They'll turn their backs on their children they will do everything they're told and expected to do under this great onslaught of American tyranny. You say, well, man, things look good. We've got a new president. Well, as we used to tell our children as they were growing up, look and learn. Let's exercise the wait and see principle to see what's going to take place in the not-too-distant future. Now, we're about to take a break here. I want you to make sure you stay tuned for the second half of the Covenanters call as we continue to give you a warning and to point out the things that are coming soon. You stay tuned for the second half of the Covenanters call.
shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. and emergency rooms and medical doctors are not an option, you need our emergency heart attack kit. Five concentrated liquid formulas enter the system in 60 seconds to protect your heart muscle, strengthen heartbeat, increase circulation, relieve pain, and make breathing easier. When seconds count, you want all the help you can get with our emergency heart attack kit. Easy to use and portable in a one-pound compact kit for your purse, briefcase, or car. Call Apothecary Herbs now for your emergency heart attack kit, toll free, 866-229-3663, that's 866-229-3663, international callers dial 704-875-8010, or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom Most people realize their body needs clean water to function properly. Pure is the cleanest water, also known as distilled water. Some frauds pushing fake science and ignorant people repeating their disinformation and half-truths will tell you distilled water leaches minerals from the body. What they fail to tell you is distilled water only attracts and flushes inorganic minerals from your body. These are minerals your body cannot process and can interfere with your proper body functions. Distilled water does flush these inorganic materials from your body and is an effective and natural way to cleanse your body. AVR sells a distiller that distills one gallon every three and a half hours. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com, click on the Superstore, go to the distiller, check the pricing and how to order, and watch the video explaining in detail why distilled water is pure water. friends welcome back to the covenanters call once again we appreciate everybody tuning in a special hello to the didier family up there in the northeastern part of the state of indiana appreciate you folks tuning in this evening uh probably uh, some other folk up there uh, that we know that are listening pastor burton and his crew special hello to them and hello to to uh folk way up there in the northland the state of idaho they're listening in we appreciate everybody that does that once again we are a bible call in question and answer program 
If you'd like to give us a call this evening here at American Voice Radio, that number, 1-800-932-1980. Let me encourage you at this break to uh, uh, be a supporter of American Voice Radio. Uh, We're not uh, motivated by the owners of this broadcasting network to do so, but I feel an obligation. Appreciate all that they've done to allow us to be on the airwaves. So if you want to be a supporter, I encourage you to do so. I also appreciate if you'd be in prayer uh, for uh, our daughter-in-law, uh, Katie, and our little uh, granddaughter, Naomi, uh, both of them sick at home tonight. Uh, we'd appreciate your prayers for them. I know their husband or their husband and daddy are very concerned about them. But uh, we'd love to hear from you this week. You can write to me, Pastor Mike Hoover, 2569 North State Highway 337, Orleans, Indiana, 47452. You can uh, drop me an email, covenanter. C-O-V-E-N-A-N-T-O-R at Zoho.com. That's Z-O-H-O.com. I would love to hear from you. Or give us a phone call at number 812-653-5578. And we would appreciate hearing from you very, very much. Uh, You know what, folks? If Lucifer, Satan, the devil, is filled with hate, And he is. And if he also has weakened the nations of the earth, you can read about that in Isaiah 14, verse 12. And if he also has control over the nations of the earth, Matthew chapter 4. And if he also knows that he has but a short time, Revelation 12, 12, then you and I can assume that the insertion of, of the influence of his hatred among men will be presently intense indeed. You and I can watch for, not be amazed, at how the devil's hatred, followed by death, covetousness, lust, sorcery, and witchcraft, will manifest themselves among a changed America of the not-too-distant future. Now, we can understand, although disdain, the manifestations of the forces of the God of forces among our fellow Americans as they, for the most part, sprint in maniacal, devil-inspired frenzy toward their own destruction. The government tyranny in America will persecute those of us who are appalled by and publicly stand against the new ways of sensual, fleshly expression of what will be called human rights. As in all of his perversions, the devil will create this class of new human rights, which in reality will be human wrongs. Our great national rebellion against God Almighty is we express our once and for all final divorcement from him. In the Netherlands, The sin of bestiality has been a legalized practice for several years. The people of the Netherlands have erected places, houses, businesses, where men and women may go and participate in God-defying practices such as this. You know the little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? A little leaven has to be tolerated even supported and promoted in the debauched, degraded, death-seeking nation of the Netherlands. 
Now, would the devil be pleased to live in the whole world, the entire lump, with the leaven of bestiality? Of course he would, and he will. In due time, this crime, the repugnant filth and hate toward God that's expressed through it, will become a human right in new America. It will be part of the coming tyranny because that tyranny will honor it and support it and make it a crime to denounce it and punish those who speak or act against it. By the way, who will those people be? The same people that speak out today against the crime of homosexuality. Let's use the biblical term. It's called sodomy. God hates it. He calls it an abomination. One of the strongest words of God's pronounced judgment in the entire Bible, an abomination. Going against the very image that God created man in. Who will uh, be persecuted for speaking out against things like that? Well, friends, for decades, hundreds of thousands of American children have disappeared off the face of the earth. They were not removed by aliens in flying saucers. No, they've been abducted by men. They've been immersed in evil, wicked, hateful, organized underground systems of child abuse. Sure, their faces appear on milk cartons and billboards. For years after their abduction and disappearance, their grieving families hope and wish and pray and long for their safe return. But I'm going to tell you, very, very few of them are ever heard of again. What do you suppose happens to those children who are stolen from the face of the earth and are thrust into the dark, sinister, evil world of men and women who prey upon them? Well, friends, we can be assured that many of them die. Not from old age do they die, but from the manifestation of hate put upon their innocent bodies and souls by those ones who lust after them and victimize them and torture them and then desire to take from them the life which God has placed in them. I don't know about you, friend, but it's hard for me to deal with things like this. The Bible says, be angry and sin not. Righteous indignation swells up in my heart and soul as it should in the heart of any man or any woman that understands this debauchery. For years, there have been rumors supported by credible testimony that this worldwide organization which obtains and supplies and, and eventually erases the child victims of international pedophilia caters to men and women in high places within governments and other powerful, influential, and untouchable organs of America. You see, friend, when tyranny rules the land and when the strongholds of the God of horses forces, excuse me, prevail in the new America, this repulsive, abominable crime against God and all that's righteous will be protected by the law. It'll be an expression of hate, replacing love, masquerading itself as love. American child abuse protected by the government will be a manifestation of our new tyranny. And those who object, who stand up against it, 
who cry out against it, they'll be called the haters. They'll be subject to official censure or treatment as criminals or in need of psychiatric help. Today in 2017, there's a growing movement within the land to legalize pedophilia. This movement will soon bear fruit. Friends, we don't need to dwell on all the possibilities of expression of this immoral mania, which will be approved of, catered to, and followed in America under tyranny. Just suffice to say that whatever men may imagine, they will do. And in a society where evil becomes good and dark becomes light, we can only be recoiled and repelled to think of the dark chasms of sinful debauchery and despair into which men will leap in their lust to satisfy their satanically inspired desires. There are and will be the results, the fruit of one of the strongholds of the God of forces. Certainly the ungodliness of sodomy will reign in absolute exaltation during the American tyranny. As in all wicked, godless cultures before, which have elevated sodomy to the perverted level of man's greatest expression of love, the practice of this abomination will firmly settle itself among the rich and famous in America. It's already there. The politicians, the Hollywood personages, the globalist elite movers and shakers, the highest of the high in the military, academia, science, and the arts will soar into the heady stratosphere of sodomy as they flaunt their hatred of God before all the peons of lesser Americana. In fact, before America is ushered into the time of the tribulation, the sin of sodomy will become one of the hallmarks of social acceptance and socially desirable notabilities if one expects to be someone in the new America. No doubt the president himself or herself in that day will be a rabid supporter, if not an unblushing practitioner of the sodomite lifestyle. Those unfortunates who rise up in condemnation of the nat national debacle of hordomania following in conformity to this stronghold of the God of forces will be in great peril. The tyranny which will be wallowing in the fornications just described will brook no censure of its evil. By law and through law, those who object to the iniquity perpetuated across the land in rebellion against God Almighty will bear the full force of a wrathful tyranny, inspired, impelled, and driven by its hatred for a righteous God. Let me insert a thought here if I could. Why, in a nation like ours, does the media elevate personages that have no business being elevated? Friend, you can label me as you please. I don't really care. I know that I'm a sinner saved by grace. I know my lineage. I know God has placed me here for a purpose. But I'm sick and tired of people from Hollywood thinking they can counsel this nation. I'm sick and tired of people from Hollywood thinking they're spokespersons for any issue in this land. Since when does someone that makes a living playing make-believe as an adult 
have any, pur- any purpose, any reason for giving counsel to this land? Why should a sports figure be elevated and on the, on the high mark and be lifted up in order that they might uh, leave this nation? And they don't have anything I want to hear. Why is it that they think they have a voice? Why, why do people give voices to individuals like a Whoopi Goldberg? What does she have to say that our country needs to hear? Or any of the other women that were involved in the Women's March that denied the right for all women to participate? Why, why, why should I want to hear what they have to say? Why should a person in this nation be elevated to a spokesperson status because they've served in Congress for so many years? Hey, I'm all for limited time in Congress. I think that'd be great. People go to Congress poor, like us. They come out multimillionaires, or in the case of some, billionaires. What do they have to say that I want to hear? Why should I spend my time being taught by a child star? Hey, friends, our nation's hell-bound for tyranny. You see in God's plan for mankind marriage? Marriage is the foundational structure for the first of his ordinances, the family. Marriage and subsequently the family are God's original intended will for the human race and its dominion upon the earth which he gave to man. Sin, however, temporarily marred God's plan for mankind on the earth. In and under the American tyranny, the holy convent of marriage in the eyes of Almighty God will disappear. In fact, marriage per se will no longer be considered as an integral part of the family. Marriage will become optional to human procreation. Yes, it may devolve to the status of an archaic, even denigrated concept. To be married will be passé almost antisocial in the new American tyranny. A family will be any group of people or people and animals living together in one or several free relationships, whether or not there are children present or resultant from the wickedness which will characterize the, quote, marriage, end of quote. In actual fact, this condition exists today in America. Although in its infancy, compared to the manner in which it will be practiced and accepted in the near future. This condition, sexual and sensual license, is an expression of the raging heathen as described in Psalm 2. Yes, these new Americans, through their newfound heathenism, will desire to break asunder the former bands which have restricted them. They'll desire to break the ancient cords, such as those expressed through marriage, traditional family, and Fidelity. Paul refers to the lack or the loss of natural affection as one of those 19 characteristics defining the perilous times of American tyranny. So in the new America, marriage being eschewed, our society will be characterized by partnering. Now in 2017, there are an equal number of persons who are partnering as compared to those who are marrying I don't believe marriage will disappear totally because Jesus Christ declared that men will be marrying and giving in marriage even unto his coming. But marriage will be grossly resisted 
and greatly disdained as God's requirement for procreation among human society in America. Therefore, bastardy will be rampant in America. Illegitimate children by the millions will become a significant part of the population. Many will be abandoned. They'll be sold. They'll be enslaved. They'll be disowned by their parents. And what will become of them? Well, friends, no doubt many will find their way into the child brothels, which will be legalized and very lucrative for their owners. A percentage of the income from these brothels will be paid to the government through taxes. No doubt some of those politicians who will be part of the tyranny will invest in these businesses, padding their expected retirement accounts with the money made from government-regulated pedophilia. But many more millions of children conceived out of the desire for sensual lust and license will be murdered by their parents before birth. What will become of these? The already established, functioning, and flourishing baby murder industry in America will grow under the American tyranny. Oh, we've seen some setbacks recently in the last few days, and I pray they continue. But friends, the destruction of marriage and the family resulting in a horrendous pandemic of baby murder will one day fuel the government-authorized, government-sponsored, and government-regulated industry, are you ready, of cannibalism. Yes, that's what I said, cannibalism. Those multiplied millions of murdered babies will be parted out, sold to the highest bidder, used for medical research, eaten as delicacies in upper-class restaurants. I don't think I'll go any further with that thought. The American tyranny, those who operate it, will reap megadollars from the operation of this baby murder industry, which they will oversee and regulate. And this industry will become a small part of the global economy, erected by the merchants of the earth for their gain. Take your Bible and read Revelation 17, verses 11 through 13. Friends, indeed, the time soon to come under the American tyranny will be perilous, especially for those conceived in the womb. Is this not tyranny in its grossest, rankest form? Yes, it is the cruel expressions of barbarity which characterize tyranny. The American tyranny will be most barbarous indeed. Adolf Hitler codenamed his military invasion of the Soviet Union in 1941 Operation Barbossa. After the German king, Frederick Barbossa I, who scourged Europe in the 12th century. The same term might be applied to the coming barbaric government-sponsored system of infanticide devised by the American tyranny. But friends, there is more. The national pandemic following after of this stronghold of sensual gratification will result in the explosion of STDs. Partnering instead of marriage will be manifested through a scene reminiscent of the annual reproduction orgies of snakes. As God looks down on America, he'll no doubt observe the nation as a grand, intertwined, writhing, wriggling, slippery, sliding mass of lascivious humanity. As Americans by the millions move from partner to partner to partner, 
The accompanying diseases will explode across the land. Pestilence in the form of STDs will ravage the population. Millions will be sick, and many of them will die. There will be terrible health and medical results from this condition. The nationalized so-called health care system will be overwhelmed. The dead and dying AIDS victims not able to be treated or beyond treatment will litter the streets, the parks, the neighborhoods, the shelters. Those driven blind or insane from syphilis will become a curse upon neighborhoods. Indeed, friends, the times are going to be perilous. What might be the response to the American tyranny, which will be unable to deter and eradicate and stop the pestilence brought upon the land because of unrestrained lasciviousness? Well, friends, it will be death by decree. The victims, maybe by the millions, will at the least be rounded up and quarantined. There in their government-ordained sequester, they will die. Many will perish from the diseases they carry. Others will be murdered, done away in cold blood in order to protect the rest of society. More will be experimented upon, Nazi-style, by doctors and researchers in order to find cures, to create biological, military-grade weapons, to further research, and to create disease-fighting serums and inoculants. That's going to be some of the results. The consequences of following after just one of the strongholds of the God of forces. Did he design this stronghold as a liberating factor for mankind? No, friend. He designed it in order to kill men. But he has and will deceive men into believing that Honoring this stronghold, as the Antichrist will do, will bring them the freedom their wicked, iniquitous minds and hearts desire. Stop and think about it with me for just a moment, if you would. When that time comes, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. When God will restrain that power that has withheld the wickedness on the face of this earth. When God holds that power back and allows mankind to go headlong in all of his wicked and pernicious ways to try and accomplish everything that he wants to do. you have any concept of what it will be like on this earth during that day? Have you thought about it? Have you conceived it in your mind? Do you realize that the things that we speak of this evening are coming? And that spirit is already here. Are you ready? Do you know Christ is your Savior this evening? I want you to know lots of people talk about being a Christian. But as we've said many times on this broadcast, you must be a Christian in the biblical definition of the term. It doesn't mean that you're a member of a church, that your grandparents are buried in the church graveyard, that you're, you've kept yourself moral, that you've joined the church, that you've done this, you've done that, you've been baptized. Friends, the only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ. 
Ephesians chapter 4 says there's one Lord. There's one faith. There's one baptism. I suggest to you this evening that you find out which one it is. If not, you'll find yourself under the judgment hand of God for your sins because you did not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. This is a Covenanter's Call. I'd love to hear from you this week. You can write to me, Pastor Mike Hoover, 2569 North State Highway 337, Orleans, Indiana, 47452. Drop me an email, covenanter at zoho.com, C-O-V-E-N-A-N-T-O-R at zoho, Z-O-H-O, dot com. Or give us a phone call, the number 812-653-5578. Now, you stay tuned for more great programming here on American Voice Radio. Please remember the prayer request that I shared with you. Very important that you do so. Appreciate you tuning into the broadcast this evening. Lord willing. Next Tuesday night, we'll be broadcasting from Payson, Arizona. So we'll look forward to that. I hear the music. My time's up. May God bless you until we meet again. Have a great evening. and medical views presented on various shows heard on American Voice Radio Network are not necessarily the views held by the management of American Voice Radio and are not presented as an endorsement by this network. All statements heard on American Voice Radio are the sole responsibility and opinion of those who speak the particular statement.
reversing or even stabilizing, all fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGScoins.com. That's DGScoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Alfred Addisk, and this is the American Independence Hour for Tuesday, 31st day of January, year of our Lord, 2017. Give you my disclaimer, I'm a man made in God's image. That's the first point as per Genesis 1, 26 through 28. And again, that's on the sixth day God created man in his image and gave man dominion over the animals. If I'm a man made in God's image, I can't be an animal. All right? And if you have laws that treat me as an animal, and you want to subject me to those laws, you are violating my freedom of religion. Uh, Second, I'm endowed by my Creator with certain unalienable rights. That's as per the second sentence of the Declaration of Independence. And again, we're getting into my freedom of religion, protected by both the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States and Article 1, Section 6 of the Texas Constitution, which protects people's freedom of religion. Um, Insofar as I received my unalienable rights from my Creator to deprive me of those rights, to do deny, or uh, um, through some fiction or pretense, say, look, you don't actually have those rights, or we're just going to ignore them, you are violating my freedom of religion. Uh, I'm one of the people of the state of Texas, a member state of the Perpetual Union styled the United States of America. And again, it's it's important in my mind to identify as one of the people, not one of the citizens, one of the persons, one of the inhabitants, one of the occupants, one of the residents. No. What you'll find in your constitution is that it is designed for the people. If you want to make a claim on your state constitution, and perhaps even the federal constitution, you need to identify, in my opinion, as one of the people. You need to expressly say, yeah, I'm one of the people. Who's going to say you're not? Um, if you go along with the, uh, you want to be a resident, inhabitant, occupant, uh, you know, so on, if you're going to play that game, you have a different standing, and you may not be able to claim rights that you would otherwise like to have. 
I have repeatedly pledged my allegiance to the United States of America. I did it in my Pledge of Allegiance. I've been saying it since I was a little kid. And I did not pledge my allegiance to the United States. I pledged my allegiance to the United States of America. And I think they have to honor that pledge if you want to make a point of it. I'm broadcasting from within the borders of the state of Texas. Again, the point to that is I'm just telling people I am acting right now within the context of a state of the union. I'm not in a territory. I'm not I'm not broadcasting in a territory. I'm not broadcasting from a territory. I'm not broadcasting from a state of the United States. I'm in a state of the union, which in the state of Texas is one of the uh States of the Union. The Union is the United States of America, not United States. Two different planes or venues. I'm acting at arm's length, which means if you check your law dictionary and you look up the term arm's length, or in some dictionaries it'll say at arm's length, <clears throat> what it means is you're not acting in a fiduciary capacity. You are not acting as a representative for some other entity. I believe this is important because I think the system presumes that we walk in there in the capacity of fiduciaries for some other entity. We represent ourselves. We represent what I think is probably a fiction, um, but we are not there as ourself. We are there as a representative of some other entity. I think that's the way the system operates. I could be mistaken about that, but that's my that's my suspicion. And when I walk in, I say, I'm here at arm's length, means I don't represent anything else. I don't even represent me. I am me, right? And that means I have all of the rights that were declared for a man made in God's image. I have all of the rights declared they, uh, when the Declaration of Independence, where it says we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are all endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, I get those unalienable rights because I'm not acting in a representative capacity. For example, if I, if it were true that I'm representing a fiction, that I'm presumed to represent a fiction when I come into the court, that fiction doesn't have God-given unalienable rights. That fiction is not made in God's image. All right, And I think it's part of the reason why I subscribe to the hypothesis that they are, that the system presumes us to, to represent some sort of a fiction. God did not give any rights to legal fictions. Fiction is a lie. According to the Bible, the father of all lies is Satan. That means trusts, corporations, uh, estates, a bunch of other odds and ends. I don't know. But if it's a legal fiction, it implies to me that if you're working with a legal fiction, you are working, you are representing something that is the spawn of Satan. I, I don't represent fictions. I don't care to. I'm, I'm coming in. I'm at, at, at I'm at arm's length. I'm not representing any fictions or anyone else unless I voluntarily. I could represent, for example, I might represent Frank Steffen, the co-host on the program. I might, under certain circumstances, he might ask me to represent him, and I might agree to do so. But it would be a specific agreement. It wouldn't be implied. There'd be no implication that I represent the 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 co-host on the program. If 
He's got his problems. I got mine. I'm here at arm's length. It's just me. And if you want to mess with me, you have to recognize me as acting at arm's length, not representing someone else. And if I were representing someone else if, or some other entity, a fictional entity especially, that entity would not have the rights I want to claim. All right? I can't, if there is, if it's true that the all uppercase name Alfred Addisk identifies some entity other than me, then that entity doesn't have my rights. And if I represent it, if it is the defendant and I represent it, then the only rights in play are whatever rights are afforded to a legal fiction, and there aren't many. And those rights are they none of them flow from God, and they are trivial compared to the the rights that you can trace back to to Genesis one twenty six through twenty eight, a man made in God's image, endowed by and the are the Declaration of Independence, I'm endowed by my Creator with certain unalienable rights. These are powerful and important rights. <clears throat> and if I'm representing a fiction, it doesn't have any of these rights. The trick then is my opinion is that. Once they get you in there to represent the fiction, and I think that's how they operate, but I could be completely wrong. You don't want to believe it because you heard from me. That's just my, that's my, my hypothesis. Once they get me, for example, Alfred Addis, the man with the capitalized name to represent a legal fiction called Alfred Addis, all uppercase, spelled in all uppercase letters, my theory could be wrong, maybe right, maybe wrong. But if they can get you to represent that, you're not necessarily in big trouble right then. The trouble, so far as we can see, speculate, hypothesize, occurs when they ask, do you understand the charges? And if I say, yeah, I understand the charges, and most people do this, oh, yeah, 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 I'm a smart guy, I understand the charges. You know, the truth of the matter is there aren't many attorneys who fully understand any charges you can make. A seatbelt violation, right? Do you think how many attorneys do you think there are who fully comprehend everything that's involved in charging someone with not having fastened their seatbelt? There are layers on layers on layers in those charges, and I doubt if any of us it would be rare for anyone to truly understand in the sense of comprehend those charges. But I strongly suspect again, could be wrong, could be wrong, could be wrong. But I strongly suspect that when they ask, do you understand the charges, what they're really asking is, do you consent or agree to be subject to these charges? Well, even though we are charging it, a fiction, with the all uppercase name Alfred Addisk, we're char it's the defendant. How about you, Al, the living man? Do you agree to be subject to the charges? Right? Do you understand the charges against the fiction? Will you take the heat? Will you act as a as a surety on those charges. And if we find it guilty, do you agree to go? How about you go to jail, Al? How about you pay the fine, Al? We'll find it guilty because it doesn't have any rights, and we'll get you, by a certain amount of fiction and subterfuge, we will get you to agree to accept punishment penalty for those all up for the, for the uh, uh, charges that are imposed on a fiction. Will you do it? I'm trying to say, no, I won't do it again. I'm sure that anyone listening to this is going to think that, uh, you know, this is a, a bizarre and improbable, irrational system of thought that I'm expressing here, and they might be right. 
Maybe I'm wrong. It's because I think so doesn't make it so. You know, so you have to, you know, you take it all with with salt, you know, see if you agree, you disagree, seems plausible, incredible. You know, you have to make up your own mind and do what you want to do in your particular situations because whatever you do, if you believe what I say, if you believe what Frank says, if you believe what uh, Donald Trump says, you're still the one, if, you get, if you're being squeezed by the courts, you're the one, depending on what decisions you make, you're the one who is going to perhaps pay the penalty or perhaps do the time. And it won't, go, it won't work to go back, well, Al said or Frank said or Donald Trump said. No, you said. You may follow what other people tell you, but in the end, you're the one who said you certain words, checked in certain boxes, whatever, and you agreed to certain things. And based on these agreements, you may or may not be going to the slammer, or you may or may not be receiving a penalty, a fine, a fee, uh, blah, blah, blah. But my point is you must take personal responsibility or whatever it is you're saying or putting in writing because you're the one who's going to be held accountable. You're not going to be able to get, well, Frank Steffen said, you know, no, it doesn't matter what Frank said. It doesn't matter what I say. It matters what you say because you will be held accountable and judged according to whatever it is you said, and you can't come back and say, oh, that's so-and-so told me. You make the choices. You pay the personal responsibility. You take personal responsibility for the choices you make, and that means you have to actually look at them. If you see any of these arguments that we present on this program and you think any of these things make any sense, you say, I'm going to do that. Well, you'd better check it out. You know, you can't just sit back and say, well, you know, you know, we, we could absolutely rely on whatever Al says or whatever Frank says. No, no, no. You must, you can Listen to what we have to say. You can consider what we are saying, and then you have to do your own research to verify for your own, to your own satisfaction whether you think the arguments we're presenting on this program are valid or they don't work for you. So it's you know we're just telling you you got to take that responsibility. Our Frank, uh, Frank Stefan is our co-host. Hello, Frank. How are you doing? Oh, pretty good. There you go again with that crazy talk, personal responsibility. Yeah, We're crying yeah, out loud, yeah, this yeah. is the United States. We, we I understand. <laughs> Nobody on the left wants personal responsibility. Nobody really wants personal. It's hard to find people who want personal responsibility. Yeah, it is. And, uh, we recommend it to others. <laughs> yeah, well, yes. It's a good thing. We would kind of like an exemption for ourselves. Do it as I do, as I say, not as I do. Yeah, that's exactly my right. My dad. Uh, now, I want to go back here a little bit because you said a lot there in in, in not that much time. Uh, but understanding and understand, it, it is pretty much uh, not what people think. I mean, you know, you think, well, uh-huh. comprehend. Well, no. Uh, okay, here's some. Now again, Al made it clear not to listen to me, but no, I didn't say not to listen <laughs> to you. I said just don't believe everything you hear from you or me. I'm, I'm not saying not listen. I'm saying listen carefully. Well, one thing you did when you said, you know, it's it, it doesn't matter what anybody says. It matters what you say, and it also hmm. matters what you can make other people understand or or comprehend. And mm-hmm. probably understand because you know if yeah okay maybe you know something, but if you can't communicate it, yeah, you're in a world of hurt. 
and you walk away shaking your head thinking, geez, golly, I'm the smartest guy on the planet, and I know this inside out, and how can this be happening to me? Uh, well, it does. Maybe not quite so smart. No, because if you can't communicate it, then you don't have a chance, no matter how smart you are. And if you communicate in a way that nobody else can comprehend, uh, same same difference. But another thing is, like, when you say things like, okay, well, understand everybody walking down the street, and you go, hey, you, do you understand? And they go, oh, yeah. And And they think they're saying, yeah, I comprehend. Mm-hmm. I get it. Then that's all it means to them. Yep. Just like when you ask somebody, are you a resident? Oh, yeah, sure. Well, to them, that means, do I live here? That's what it means to them, but that's not what it means in the law. And, yeah, know. you know, and understanding, same thing. Here's, here's something I just pulled up. In the law of contracts, and this is uh, from uh, Black's Law, let's see, uh, second edition. No. The online second edition. So it's probably newer than that. But anyway, in the law of contracts, and that's what we're really talking about. Because when you go to court, when, you know, it's all, everything's contract. Other than, you know, capital, you know, you can't murder people. You know, you can't rob people. That isn't a contract. If you do it, you're going to be punished whether you agree to anything or not. But most everything else in life is a contract. You know, do I agree? I I would disagree with that. I'd say most of what... I'd say most of what we get tangled up in today are trust relationships, or at least I know, well, you, know I you may be right. right technically. You may be right that technically that the majority of our our agreements are contractual, but the ones where we're messing with the government, to well, me, these are trust relationships I, rather I think than you're contracts. Right. I think you're right, but the way they the way they go about saying, well, okay, and I don't think the relationships that we necessarily engage in, and I don't mean you and me, but I mean in general with the government, are necessarily trusts. Because, hey, it, you know, if you're not the beneficiary and you don't know you're the beneficiary, you just walk in there and go, well, hey, do you understand? Sure, I understand. Well, boink, that's your agreement. Now, whether that's, a, you know, a, a contract per se or just a simple agreement, it's a meeting of the minds. He asked you, do you understand? You said, yeah. You just had a meeting of the minds. Okay, good, good, good. We're on the same page here. You know, you understand. <laughs> Great. You know, and now we're going to proceed to put you in jail. But in the law of contracts, this uh, they say it's a kind of a loose and ambiguous term unless it's accompanied by some expression to show that it is constituted, okay, uh, constituting a meeting of the minds or parties. Now, Camp versus Warning, and also another Barco versus Sanger, says this, that basically, if there's a uh, some expression to make it that it is a meeting of the minds, then it means, you know, that it is a meeting of the minds. It's, a, uh, it, it's part of a contract. Yeah. Now, when do you understand... The charges. Well, if I say yes, didn't we just have a meeting of the minds? Because he just read me the charges. So we presume he comprehends the charges. And when we hear understand, we think we're hearing comprehend. And we say, sure. But what if... Oh, he, yeah, I'm no dummy. I understand. Yeah, what if he means, uh, will you stand and answer to these charges? Instead of, do you comprehend what these are? 
and you say, oh, yeah, sure. Well, now, forget what we presume that he meant. He mean, you know, and he can say what he means just like we can say what we mean. I mean, he won't say it out loud, but apparently, unless you ask him if he understands, then it's like, oh, heck no, I don't understand anything. But, you know, to me, that is a very simple, easy thing to see that, look, they're roping you into something. You know, and the other thing about that you mentioned representing other people is, it's funny, you know, you can get an attorney, and he'll go to court and represent you, and he, he may fight real hard and he may get real passionate he may not whatever but he's there representing you but when you're found guilty and it's time to go to prison he doesn't go to prison for you that's right so there's some difference here somewhere something happens that we we agree to that the attorney didn't agree to when when he signed up for well he didn't and nobody asked him if he understood the charges right Nobody asked if he understood the charges. If we asked the attorney and he said, yeah, I understand the charges, great. <laughs> and I'll be Lock out of here. Up, judge, get him. You know? I'll be out of I'll be leaving he, now. He didn't just say he understood. The, the only one in the room who said, oh, yeah, I understand the charges, that was the, that was the apparent defendant. And even when, when you sit back and say the attorney will represent you, I'm not sure that's true. I think right. you represent the fiction when you walk into the courtroom, all right, or at least when the case begins. They, they, I suspect that the fiction is the defendant. Maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong, but that's my suspicion. But they send a mail to you operating on the assumption that you will open the mail and process it because you are fiduciary for that defendant. You represent the defendant, all right? You get this letter in the mail that says you're being sued for $100,000 or you're being charged with something and you could go to jail for three to five or whatever. They send it to you and you receive it on behalf of it, all right, the entity with the all uppercase name. My suspicion may be true, maybe not true, but you receive it. You then go out and either represent it in court. You say, do you have an attorney? No, I'm, I'm representing myself. You're representing the fiction is what I think you're really doing. All right, if you don't if you hire an attorney, the attorney does not represent you. I think you as fiduciary for the fiction, for the it, I think you are hiring the attorney to represent it. And you may not know that, understand it, but I think that's the presumption. Now the attorney is representing it, and what are you? You're the guy who said, I understand charges. You're the surety. You're the sacrificial goat. They're going to have a trial, and it's kind of like a kangaroo court where they're going to try this fiction (laughs) and find it guilty, and then they're going to say, hey, you, hey, stupid, you're the guy who thinks you understand the charges, right? Well, guess who's going to the slammer? Yeah. I think maybe that's how it operates. Now, could be false. I may be mistaken, deluded, and delusional, but... I think it runs something like that. I think it does too, and I, you know, and again, this is like a what through a glass darkly sort of thing. But where do you think along the way? Because I, I, I think that is true. I think the uh, because what happens when you get an attorney to represent you? All of a sudden, you're supposed to be quiet. You're not supposed yeah, to talk, and if you do talk, the judge tells you, "Hey, be quiet." You know, you're why are you? Here. Why can't you talk if you are the defendant? Because you are not the defendant, and you. I think that's uh, the answer. And because you gave up your, you get, you said no. I don't want to do this myself. I'm getting an attorney. 
I'm not defending this uh, fiction by myself. Mm-hmm. I'm getting this attorney. Okay, fine. But and he, he can you, defend the fiction. Sure, but you still have to be here because you're the surety. But you don't get to yeah, talk now. You're the now. sacrificial goat. You're the bag of money. You sit there and you don't say anything now. And I'm just wondering because I don't. I don't. I'm really asking because I don't have. I don't know where along the line did we agree or not speak out against becoming surety. Well, your presumed ignorance of the law is no excuse. I think that's part of the, I mean, the the rationale behind this. But the whole thing is deceptive. And maybe, again, the, the, the theory that we're advancing right now is just fundamentally flawed and wrong. Maybe what we're saying here is just nonsensical. It could be. And you have to always consider that possibility. You can't ever let that skate away. You can't just go and say, I know the absolute truth, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to prove it in court. No, nobody knows the absolute truth. And you're not likely to prove the absolute truth in court. But if you can raise certain issues, you may get them to say, yeah, get out of here. You know, you're no fun. You're not going to play. <laughs> you're, you're not, not going to be the surety. <laughs> How can we, what's the point to having a court if we don't have a surety? Right. You've got to have a real man to pay the price. Otherwise, that's, what's the point going through this fiction of trying this fix? Why are we trying this fiction for some alleged offense? Yeah, I think that that's probably pretty close to the truth. And it, it seems it that every time be. anybody comes close to making a, a, a comprehensible argument along these lines, the court wants no part of it, and you can go now. Well, one of the things... I think one of the reasons they want you to take an attorney. So you don't have an attorney, do you, Mr. Stuff? They said, no, I'm, I'm going to be, well, we have to recommend that you get your get an attorney. Well, okay, I'll get an attorney, maybe, Your Honor, if you can promise me that the attorney represents me only. All right. And does not represent any other entity. How about that, Your Honor? Can you can you stipulate that the attorney is only represents me? I don't know if I want to make. I don't even know if I want that stipulation. But there are. I think I am. I have high level confidence. Doesn't mean I'm right. But I think the attorneys are only licensed in this state, meaning in the territorial state, the administrative district, the state of the United States. I don't think there are any attorney licenses within a state of the union. And I think if you take the attorney, if you hire the attorney, it becomes, it's evidence that you voluntarily walked into this state, this fictional plane. You got an attorney? Yeah, I got an attorney. Here's my attorney. Call. Great, great, great. Then you're, you're the same net as all the rest of us, aren't you? And you think you understand the charges, smart guy. Maybe you aren't as smart as you think you are. But oh, yeah. and hire the attorney. I don't think you can be a license I don't think you can be licensed to practice law within a state of the union. Again, could be wrong. I may be mistaken about that. Well, I don't think I don't think you can either. I you know, because it's a common uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh what do they call that? Common law, right? Probably. Well, it's a common uh, job. It's a common, you know, it's okay, some people do. Maybe, yeah, common occupation, occupation. and mm-hmm. it was, uh, you know, and then somewhere along the line, it, it stopped, and yeah. you know, somewhere along the line, a lot of things changed, and I think that's what happened. You know, exactly what we're describing. But you know, I don't want people that because a lot of people out there are are not comfortable. You know, going to court by themselves with no, because you are. Oh, yeah. You can bring all your friends you want, but they got to sit in the back, and they yep. can't talk to you. They can't hand you any papers. They can't do anything. 
And because they can they still can, hand money to the judge, though, can't sure, they? Sure, I think so, yeah. Okay, that's, that's okay. That. But they, they, they make that very clear. I mean, I've seen mm-hmm. it so many times that, no, uh-uh, you're on that side of the bar, you stay over yep. there, you can't say anything. And you're up there by yourself, and you really are, and, yep. and you feel it. Now, yeah. the thing about an attorney is, to get an attorney that represents you, I think, is a big mistake. But to get an attorney as your legal counsel may not be because but you got to make this out with your your attorney because you got to say listen you know what you don't represent me you counsel me you're the expert yep. you know the law when i got a question you answer me you sit there more, and more with important me. from my perspective i'd say you don't represent a legal fiction Right, you sit you there. You don't represent me. You, know, you counsel me. You don't represent me, and you don't repre- And I don't represent any legal fiction, and you don't represent it. I'm not hiring you to represent a fiction. I'm hiring you to counsel me. That's right, and it is your right to have that, to have counsel. And um, the Supreme Court has said that you can have anybody you want as counsel. It's up to you. You don't have to have an attorney. However, now in some cases. An attorney can be a helpful thing to have as your counsel because they can do things you can't do as a pro se, which doesn't sound fair, well, because it's not. But, uh, for instance, you can't go have a meeting with the DA if you're a pro se. They won't, they won't do it. No, but they will if you have a, a counsel. If you have mm-hmm. counsel, they'll, they'll meet with them. Will they really meet with the counsel or will they meet with the representative? Ah, uh, I think they have to meet with your counsel because getting, just getting somebody as your counsel is, is, you know, forget what the Supreme Court says. You're in Jerkwater, USA out here where the little tyrants in the black dresses run their little uh, circus, and they don't much care what the, what the you know, court in D.C. said any more than, you know, your average Joe walking down the street cares what they say. They do what they want for the most part, you know, and, and all you can do in those cases is just basically I have seen people stop. Uh, prosecutions for months on end and uh, one I saw months on end and then finally be dismissed because the person would not relent no I want what do you mean he would not relent on what regard on on, on, on the point of I want counsel of my choice yeah you know and no he just wouldn't you know no you gotta have an attorney no I don't and I won't and he cited it all and and went on and on back and forth Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and he would not give it up and they eventually just said all right dismissed you know because it is it's one of those things that you know people don't they don't think about because it's like well ah, attorney counsel whatever you know I, I just need somebody up here to help me you know, they don't really think much further than, well, what's the difference between a counsel? What what does attorney no. actually no. even mean? I mean, the word no. a torn that attorney is, it's not a good thing. They they transfer property. And uh, you know, if you're a defendant, property never flows your way. Okay, it always no. goes the other way. No. So that guy's not there to help you if he's an attorney. No. You know, one other thing, just as an aside, but this is what we're talking about to some degree. I'm looking at Black's, what dictionary do I have, Ninth edition. And I think they started in the Ninth edition. I think there's a 10th edition out right now. Isn't that true? Do you know? I have no idea. I have my, the, the, the newest Black's law I have is the 4th edition. Okay. 
I'd like to get a tenth. I, I mean, I like the dictionaries. I had them all for a while, and then most of them burned up in a fire up in Oregon back a couple of years ago. But they do, in the ninth edition, I think this is the first one, the eighth might be the first one, but they define the word legalese. <laughs> and it says 1914, and I don't know why that year is there, but they do have the year 1914 is there, or at least the number 1914, and I assume it's a year. Um, yeah, I think it's a year. And then they say, the jargon characteristically used by lawyers, especially in legal documents. The uh, And then as an example, the partner chided the associate about the rampant legalese in the draft uh, sublease, also termed law talk. See, plain. I'm not looking up plain right now, but the point I'm trying to get to is that they recognize that there is another language up here. When you walk into that courtroom, you may be required to speak legalese. You think you're speaking English, and there's, oh, no, we're speaking legalese up here. Well, if nothing yeah. else, you— Different set of definitions. You know, you're going to have to learn how to understand it, if not speak it. Well, yeah. I mean, because if you don't, if you don't understand legalese, uh, you're just, to coin a phrase, you're just screwed in court. Because yeah, you're second-class citizen. Oh, best. what they're saying to you is not at all what you're what you think you're hearing, because mm -hmm. they're not. You they may be using common words to you, but they are not common meanings. You know, and that well, and this is something we talk about. I've written articles on this. <clears throat> every virtually every word you can find in a dictionary has multiple definitions. I don't know what the word understand. I don't know what I'm just I, I don't know how many definitions there may be uh for the term understand but I'm going to guess without looking that there are multiple definitions oh, yeah. to be found in the in the dictionary and this is a valid question based on that reality there are multiple definitions for almost every word you look at yep what do you mean by that and it is therefore <laughs> reasonable to ask which of these meanings do you what do you mean when when you say uh, profit, <laughs> okay. Now <laughs> let, here, let me let me open up my Black's Law dictionary here, and here are we've got profit and profit and profit, and we've got. By the time you get done, I'll bet you without looking, I wouldn't be surprised if there were a dozen or more definitions of profit, and they could easily be several definitions by the time gross profit, uh, net profit, uh, how many variations on profit are there? Plus, just the raw word. I'll bet you could find a dozen different definitions. Now, which one do you mean, Your Honor? Yeah. I, I, the, <laughs> which one do you mean when you say profit? I could imagine he'd get pretty tired of that pretty quick. Oh, yeah, he'd get tired of it. And the truth <laughs> of the matter is they don't know either. Right. Once once you start to raise the issue of what 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 is the definition of the word you're using there? You know, you make a five-word sentence, and that mean the the sentence, the meaning of the sentence will defend will depend on the specific meaning of each of the words, and they have multiple possibilities. There could be three possible definitions for the first word, and five for the second word, and two for the third word, and so on. And by the time you get done, you could multiply these out. You take three times two times five times uh, four times one, times maybe two, and I don't know what that works out to, but you could have. 80 possible definitions or possible meanings for a five-word sentence that had these multiple definitions. Somebody's got to say, which one of the definitions are you relying on?
And I make a bet, among other things, they take advantage of us, in my opinion, by using their own. De- when you raise this issue, <laughs> I think you can. If you can, if you can stick to your guns, like the guy you were talking about, mm. who would not agree to go. He wouldn't. He wanted counsel, and that's what he was going to have. Yep. If if you once you raise this issue of meanings of words, this whole thing starts to fall apart. The whole thing becomes. I mean, it's all very fantastic, and it's not irrational. I am entitled to know what the heck do you mean when you say understand. We can't allow you to comprehend what we're talking about. That would spoil the whole thing. Yeah, I know. The whole thing will collapse. You start asking people. What do you mean by that? Yeah, yeah what, 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 is, what definition are you using for that word? And you could, in theory, if you had paperwork that was coming at you before before you got to court and you responded to the author of the paperwork, maybe it's a prosecuting attorney, maybe it's the uh, plaintiff's attorney, maybe it's the plaintiff themselves and say, and you said that uh, you used this five word sentence. Now I need to know what <laughs> now, if the first word of the sentence you've used there, that has three different definitions in, in uh, black's law dictionary. And the second word has two and the fourth one has four and so on. And we can spell them out for them. Yeah, circle and the one. Please check whichever, whichever of these is the one you mean. Yeah, multiple. Because choice. I can't answer you. I can't answer your question until I know what the definition is of each of the words you're using because there are multiple definitions. It would be a completely different thing if one each word had only one definition. If it was just a standard fact of law and English that every word had a single definition. It's not. It's quite the contrary, and I'm entitled to understand the charges. I need to. I'm entitled to know the nature. What is it? What is nature and cause? Nature and cause. Okay, mm-hmm. fine. Need to talk about that cause. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Give me the definition that you're using of cause. And if they call, and what becomes fun on this thing? I mean, it becomes fantastic, but it is reasonable and it's rational. If I Okay, we've got a. I'm entitled to know the nature and the cause of the allegations that are charges against me. Right, and if I okay, can't understand, I what need you're to saying. know the definition of cause. And you're going to come up with and say, "Well, we're going to use definition number three, which says that a cause is a uh, is a right of action." Okay, we're using definition number three. That's great. Now, what do you mean by right when you say right of action? Well, door and number what two. Mean by action, and when they give you another set of definitions, well, then when action, we need by that word, I mean such and such. I'm going to pick door. I'm going to pick definition number three. All right, for action. Okay, but that definition is made up of words, and I'm going to need to know the definition of each of those words too. So I'm guessing it's going to take a little while. <laughs> Yeah, thoroughly <laughs> define every word that's not just used in your document, but every word that's used in the definitions of the word in your document. This is going to go on. We better have a Snickers bar packed along with us because <laughs> this is going to take some time. Well, yeah. And now, it sounds irrational, but if you can do this in paper and you don't do it to the point where it becomes obvious that you are messing with them. As long as you can present this in a rational way, say, look, keyword, does it mean one, two, three, or four? Which one of the definitions? Right? It's the sort of thing it creates problems that the system will not easily 
overcome. Well, no, right. and the reason is, and they will act as though, well, it's because it's just such a big inconvenience, and that's a lie. Mm-hmm. The reason is is because they're lying, they're being deceptive, and if they have to define everything, they're going to get caught. And that's oh, just yeah. it, you know? I mean, that's why they don't want to do it. Well, you're going to get down to definitions of things like sooner or later you're going to get to the definition of a word like jurisdiction or plane or venue, all right? And you're going to have to ask – you're not just going to have to tell us which of the two, three, or five definitions you're using when you refer to jurisdiction. You are also going to wind up – there's going to be something in there about the the territory, the venue, something, where this jurisdiction applies, and you're going to say, well, where does it apply? Is this within a state of the union, or is it within a state of the United States? Where is this? Yeah, and which definition? I mean, once you start asking these questions, people, (laughs) uh uh-oh. It's like, in my opinion, they should look and say, "Uh uh-oh, this guy knows the secret. Wait a minute. Did he kill somebody? Get him out of here. Yeah, right. You know, know, uh, if you you haven't really done something really bad, uh, they probably – now, you – where it said jargon, that was out of Black's Law, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I looked up jargon. Okay. And it has uh, two definitions here, I guess. Special words or expressions that are used by a particular profession or group and are difficult for others to understand. Yep. And then it says a form of language regarded as barbarous debased or hybrid uh, I like that to me it seems a negative connotation on this word jargon and they're telling you that it's hard to understand for one thing right all right all right there if you're backing up black's law dictionary where did you look up jargon uh just on some uh online dictionary here okay all right nevertheless nevertheless um, this is my definition of jargon. I find it such and such. What is does, does your definition agree that jargon is does, is hard to understand? Well, wait you, do you agree that jargon is is jargon. barbarous? <laughs> you know, now I should have went further. If you don't tell me what you tell me, I'm just asking. You know, see, you asked me a, a question. See how this works, folks. I had a definition on my screen here. Al said, "Well, where's that coming from?" And I thought, hmm, I don't even know. It's just on the screen here. So now I do know. I went somewhere else, Merriam-Webster. Now everybody knows okay. that one, right? And that's pretty much accepted. And I'm glad I looked for it because it's even better. Uh, it has three definitions, and the first one is A, confused, unintelligible language. Yeah. Uh, B is a strange, outlandish, or barbarous language or dialect. C is a hybrid language or dialect simplified in vocabulary and grammar and used for communication between peoples of different speech. And then number two. Different speech. Yeah. Now, that's all by itself. I mean, all right, I'm, I'm, we're going to have to dissect this one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> when you talk about different speech counselor or attorney or whatever you are, um, are we talking about different nationalities? Are we talking about different professions? Are we talking about different venues? I mean, uh, what are we talking about? Different speech. What does that mean? Yeah. 
I want to find the attorney who can give me an <laughs> adequate definition to this. Well, and especially if you can get at this in pretrial. Now, here's the second one, and I think they'd like this one fine because it's pretty neutral. The technical terminology or characteristic idiom of a special activity or group. Yep. Okay, that that's pretty neutral. That sounds like lawyers. Yep. But number three is... But if you're not part of that special group, guess what? You don't speak that language. You don't speak that jargon. That's right. But to do that in the United States of America... I would say is a violation of due process. If you're going to be speaking in a different language, I'm going to need an interpreter. Is that what this guy is? Is he my interpreter? Yeah. He's not yeah. really my yeah. counsel, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, that, that may be true. And we're going to have to, I mean, once you can demonstrate, you know, just what we've done just now, we've just begun to scratch the surface of the word jargon, which is central to the definition of legalese found in Black's Ninth. All right. Now they're going to say, well, there's no, the legalese is black's wide ninth doesn't count for anything. Okay, then, then what does? What dictionary defines the words that we can rely on here? If we can't use blacks, what are we going to, what are we going to do? Do we have to reach a personal a private agreement on what each word means that's used in this document? You and I, we have to come to a private agreement that red in this in this particular document, red will mean a color that most times people would refer to as chartreuse. But in this document, we'll say red, well, and it means chartreuse. And, and, and you speech. know, you've seen le a, a lot of legal documents, and most of them do have their own definitions in there. They have some key definitions, right? Not key every words word that are but, defined. Right. Yeah, I know. But there, and that tells us. Why do they define the words? So you know what they it's mean. It's because there are multiple possible definitions. Right. And therefore, to be clear, they're admitting that. We see it not just in the documents. We also see it in Title 18 and Title 24 and whatever. In the, they have different sections of definitions around throughout the United States Code and any of the other state codes. There are definitions, 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 and the definitions for one section are not the same as for another section, and the definitions in one title are not necessarily the same as in another title. And that's evidence that there are multiple definitions, and sometimes it means one thing in one title, in one section, a particular word means one thing, and that same word in another section or another title, the United States Code, can have a significantly different meaning. Yeah, and like that proves that this argument, this is not irrational. This is not just, oh, you're just messing with us to give us a hard time. No, no, no. Look, the, the, the government itself, the, the legislature, when they write the code sections, they have multiple sections of definitions. And one definition here does not, for word, doesn't necessarily match the definition in another section for the same word. That makes that means that this argument, this inquiry into the meaning of words, the definitions, this is not irrational. This is not just some little crazy fantasy that's been dreamed up by some uh, some patriot who's got his tinfoil hat on too tight. This is a real deal that's recognized. The system recognizes that definitions are critical. And I've said for years, the definitions are the law of the law. You read a section of law. Okay, anything you want. Thou shalt not kill. What does it mean? Well, it depends on the definition of thou. <laughs> and shalt, and not, and kill. And does it, does it mean kill, murder? What do we got here? Um, the law that we think, oh, the law. Yeah, yeah, well, 
What is the law of the law? It's the law of the law. Are the, it is the definitions of the words. You know, we, it is, we are all impressed by the man of action. We see him in the movies. We see him like James Bond, for example, a man of action in the movies and rest, that sort of thing. And he's got guns and clubs and whatever and secret weapons, and they can get you with it. We don't get caught with guns and clubs and secret weapons. That's not re- what really oppresses us. Unless you're what expected. oppresses us are words. We are caught in a net of words. And if you don't understand language, if you don't understand definitions, if you can't put some of these pieces together and learn how to ask questions, say what? Which your, your fundamental question is: What the heck are you talking about? What is your meaning? Well, yeah, and I'm. If you, you can know, ask those questions, this thing all falls apart. It is presumed that when they ask you a question, or they make a statement, and you go along with it. It's you don't you don't object, you don't raise any questions. It's presumed that yeah, you agreed with whatever their definition was. Now, the third the third definition of jargon is is kind of kind of cool because it it speaks to what you just said. You know, well, okay, I'm going to need the definition of the that word. But then in the definition, I'm going to need those words to find, too. I know. I know. And here's here's the third one here, like this. This is the third uh, definition of jargon. Obscure and often pretentious language marked by circumlocutions and long words. Well, of course, I had to look up that word circumlocutions because I had no idea what that means. Uh and I was, I, I guessed in my head, and I eh, was not too far off, not anywhere near exact, but the definition of that word is the use of unnecessarily large number of words to express yeah. an idea, or number two is evasion in speech. Yeah. So this is what all jargon is, which the Black's Law Dictionary defines as legalese. Yep. Hmm. Yeah. So it now makes all of what we're saying absolutely, it makes it, it's not just silliness. This is the way it really works. And once you begin to do this, what does it point out? It points out it is consistent with the third sentence of the Declaration of Independence, which says that to secure these rights, meaning God-given unalienable rights, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men uh, relying Driving its driving its just powers from the consent of the governed. When we start talking, as we're talking right now, there is an element of consent in all of our conversations. We are constantly going through a situation. I'm speaking, and I'm effectively saying, "Do you understand? Do you understand? Do you understand? Do you understand?" I don't say it out loud, but that's that's implied question. And I'm waiting for you to say, "No, I don't get that. I don't understand what you're talking about." So then I have to clarify, or maybe admit that I was wrong. But my point is that whenever we engage in communication, we have there. The consent of the governed means, to my mind, among other things, that we consent to the meaning that's being imposed by the governor. And once we sit back and say, well, I don't consent to that definition. That's not my definition. You know, they say, the law says, (laughs) you know, we've got another five-word sentence down here that describes the law. 
what happens if we look up and we find four or five definitions for one of the keywords, jargon, for example, which we've just gone through, and the and the government says, well, we're going to use definition number three. No, nah, that that's not what the way that's not what it means to me. I don't <laughs> consent to that definition. <laughs> Right, we'll have to have a meeting. I don't even care what you think. No, that's not my definition for jargon. <laughs> now what? Well, they can't proceed without your consent. In all of communication is consensual. I agree to accept your, your definition. I, I'll go along with that. I'm not raising any questions about it. So, okay, okay. We, we, we're, make, we're communicating here. We're making progress because we consent to the law of the law, which is the meaning of the words, the definitions of the words. But as soon as somebody says, wait a second, I, I, don't, I don't consent to that definition, the whole thing begins to break down. And yeah, it takes you off into a strange place that's almost like a fictional land or something like that. You're, if you're not careful, you're all you're going to start going, blah, 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 blah. I mean, you're just practically speaking in tongues. There is a consensual element to all of our communication. What if you don't consent? What if you just say, look, you said one of the words that's used in one of your definitions for jargon or at least in the trail of definitions that you trace back to jargon, you talked about confused. The word mm -hmm. confused shows up, which means two things are kind of mixed together. And they might otherwise be separate, but in this instance, they're kind of mixed together. All right. I'm confused. The language is confused. They admit it's confused. I would like, I want that confusion resolved. I can't proceed until you've told me exactly what these words mean. And they can't. Well, and what is the purpose of all this? Do you not know how to speak English? You know, because I know how to speak English. What, what is this legalese thing you got going on? What is the purpose yeah, exactly. of this? Exactly. Exactly. And that's a very good point. What is the purpose for the legal system using legalese? Yeah. Well, and the purpose is not to enhance communication. It is to frustrate communication. Well, I'm going to sit here and speak in a language that is so convoluted and so complex and so sophisticated that I know for a fact that other people, they can't follow a word I'm saying. They're just saying, I don't know what the heck that guy's talking about. He just can't, no point in listening to him. Yeah, and if they ask That's me, I wouldn't power. be able to tell them. This is like the wizard in The Wizard of Oz doing a pluribus unum and ipso facto. Yep. He's just using the language to kind of bully people. Yep. Because right. really, the he bottom line is... Problem. He doesn't need a gun. He's got words. If you did take a lawyer who's up there spouting all this stuff off, and you, you said, all right, fine, you know what? I need you to explain what you just said. Mm -hmm. Most of them couldn't do it. They That's can, exactly right. They can spout out the stuff, but they don't know what they're saying either. That's exactly right. And once you bring it to... It takes the, once you get the idea that, look, these words have to have meanings, and you're entitled to know what they mean. And if anybody doubts that, you're, they're going to have to say, well, why is it that in Title 18 there are probably how many how many separate how many separate sections of Title 18 do you suppose there are that deal with definitions? Just one Title 18, well, but it's a big title, uh, reasonably large title. I, I can't. How many imagine. different sets of definitions do you suppose are in there? Uh, a lot. I, I couldn't even imagine. It's just telling you this is not an irrational inquiry. You know, we are entitled. What do the words mean? I know Title 26, every section has a definition part. Yeah, and I understand. Some, are, some of them are probably contrary to the – some of them are other than 
what you've seen in other sections. definitions in the very same title. Yeah, they are. I guarantee yeah. they are. I've seen I them. I guarantee you. <laughs> you know, and the thing is, some of them, yeah, some of them only define a few things because they're small sections, but they've all got it, and it's like, well, yeah. geez, I, you know, why did I bother with all those years in school? I mean, learning to read and everything. I mean, geez, if, if none of the words mean what I was taught they mean, mm-hmm. what is this? Well, the, it, it, like I say, what this finally gets down to is when we really get into communicating communicating with on definitions, it is an agreement. Do you agree the jargon means this or that? All right? It is an agreement. If we're going to communicate, the communication is a kind of agreement. Do you agree when I say the definition of jargon is confused? Do you accept that agreement or do you reject it? Well, okay, if you accept it, fine, we can proceed to the next word. Or if you can reject it, now we're going to have to figure out, we're going to have to reach an agreement. What if we can't reach an agreement on what a word means? That's not what it means to me. I say, well, that's what it means to you. It doesn't mean that to me. Where are we going with this if we can't agree to the terms? You know, we talk, you were talking about contractual agreements. Mm-hmm. All right, how do we agree to the terms uh, with, to create a meeting of the minds unless we also agree to the meanings of the words themselves? Right. There is no meeting of the minds without, without people agreeing to the definitions. And nobody comes out and say, well, do you agree that jargon means you know, uh, number A, or do you think it means number C? Which one do you think? They don't ask you those questions. It is all based on presumption. Yep. You know, I I, start requiring about those presumptions. All of a sudden, this thing just spins off into space. We're talking about this. A question just crossed my mind about what if you were to walk in a court, say you've been charged with something, and you tell the judge, and I, I've actually seen, you know, people do this, not under this circumstance, but why not use this circumstance to say, listen, uh, judge, you know, yeah, I, you know, this all be great and stuff, but first you're going to have to provide me with a translator. That might be. Because, I mean, when Mexicans come in there, yep, they get a translator. Yeah, yeah. I need a translator because you're speaking in a foreign language. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, it's legalese. It's, defi- it's defined in Black's Law. Are you going to, what, you're going to throw Black's Law in the can? You don't use that? You don't, that doesn't count? Where are you getting your definitions then? You know, I mean, it opens up a big bag of, you know, something smellier than worms even. Oh, I understand. It really, the whole thing becomes almost incomprehensible unless we agree to agree. You communicate with me, you say something, you say some words, I have to implicitly, if we want to communicate, we're, I have to implicitly agree. It's just presumed that I know what your meanings are, the meanings of the words you're using are, and uh, I agree to them. If you don't agree, this whole thing just breaks down. And I think and part of saying I understand is part of that agreement that say, uh, yeah, okay, yeah. you know, whatever you say. You know, I well, accept your definition. Again, I, again, that's an illustration to my mind of the use of legalese. I, I, again, I don't think they're – you think – the average person thinks they're asking, do you, do you comprehend the charges? I, I believe you intellectually that. comprehend them. And what they're actually asking, I think, is are you willing to act as, as surety for the defendant in this matter? Right. Are you willing to take the heat? Will you stand by these charges? I mean, <clears throat> meaning, or will you take responsibility? 
Yeah, yeah, because yeah, that's what yeah, standing yeah. is, taking responsibility. Mm-hmm. I'm standing up for my rights. Well, what is that? You're taking responsibility for your rights, meaning, hey, look, I have these rights. I'm standing for them. You know, I'm I'm going to defend them. I'm going to, you know, be responsible with them. And, and that's what it basically is. I think that's what they're asking you. And, and, and why wouldn't it, they be? What's interesting about that? Well, what, they have assuming, to ask let's you. assume that the, let's assume that we're correct. And when they ask you, do you understand these charges? Let's assume that we're correct. And it really means, are you willing to act as surety for the defendant in this matter? And you'll pay the fine or do the time in the event that the fictional defendant is found guilty. Why do they ask, do you understand? Consent. I mean, that's all I can That's figure. right. They want your consent. You must manifest your consent. This is consistent, again, with that third sentence in the Declaration of Independence that says that to secure these rights, meaning the God-given unalienable rights found in the second sentence, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. They need your consent. Do you understand the charges? Do you consent? What if you don't consent? They have no just powers. Yep. That's the implication. You know, if the government was as draconian as some people suspect, they wouldn't ask you to understand the charges. I don't care whether you understand the charges or you don't understand the charges. I'm the judge, and you're going to prison, Bubba. How do you like them apples? Yep. I don't need your consent. Yeah, I think they do. And I think they're asking for it, and we don't understand that, and they certainly don't want to tell us, again, assuming this hypothesis is correct. They're not going to let the cat out of the bag and say, you people need to consent. I have heard, and I've never seen it, all right? I don't know this to be true, and I can't even think of which judge it was, but there was a judge who said Bork. I think it was Bork, Tempting of America. Never read it myself. Bork, Judge Bork, wrote a book. I believe it was entitled The Tempting of America, and I have been told, I mean, this, the rumor floats around and been around for years, that there's one point in the book where he says no one goes to prison who didn't consent to go. He did not, according to the report, he did not amplify that point. He included it. He, the statement was allegedly included in the book. I don't know if it was or wasn't. The, re, you know, the, roar, the, the report, the rumor, is that the statement was Judge Bork made the statement in the book, but he never explained it. But just the same, here is a federal judge assuming this is a true report, and I don't know. I've never seen it. All right, so take it all with salt. Maybe it's not maybe it's not true. But if it were true, it would be more evidence. They need your consent to put you in prison. But if you don't know how to manifest your objections and say, No, I don't consent to go to prison, well guess what? If you don't know how to object, then you're going bye bye. It is presumed that you have consented. Why? Because you did not manifest your rejection, your your disconsent, if there is such a word, and I'm sure there's not, but you catch what I'm doing. This is about your consent. Well, and, and we have goes down to the definitions of the words themselves. We must consent. Do you understand? Do you, you know? Well, and we have other examples like, well, your 1040 form. You got to sign it, and when you yeah, do, yeah. it says, "Oh, hey, you know what? And if you find, if you determine that I've lied about something, I agree to go to jail for 10 years." Yeah. 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 <laughs> and that is, people think I'm exaggerating, but if you read it, that's exactly what it says. I understand. And we'd like you to you sign this. You are pledging. <laughs> You're making a pledge. 
All right, you're not even getting it's not even a contract in the sense that someone else signs it along with you. You're just making a pledge, say, I pledge to go to prison if you people find out that I did anything uh, snaky. Yep. A pledge. One signature. Huh? Pledge, to my mind. I believe that's a, a signature. If you've got a document and you're the only one signing it, it's not a contract. It's a pledge. You have pledged. Yeah, I you know, but neither, either way, it's binding. Oh, yeah. Again, you know, we've talked about this on the program before, but there have been stories for years where public broadcasting has these pledge drives periodically on channel whatever, where PBS is on your, your local stations, and they have pledge drives a couple times a year, and you can call in and pledge $5 or 50 bucks or $100 or whatever it is, and they'll send you a new tote bag or something if your pledge is big enough. But if you've called in and you pledge to send 20 bucks and they don't see it within, I don't know, 10 days, two weeks, something like that, they're going to be calling you on the phone and say, where's that pledge? Yep. And you're going to say, well, I was a little liquored up that night. I didn't know what I was doing. I'm not going to say, oh, yeah, you are. That <laughs> oh, yeah, pledge you are. will be enforced, all right? You made the pledge. You're liable. They'll drag your buns into court if you're not careful. Yep. And they will compel you to pay the 20 bucks and maybe attorney fees besides. I don't know. But those pledges are not just, they are enforceable. And, uh, well, ask a lot of people in jail for uh, you know signing their 1040 and uh, you know trying to play games, and uh, they're sitting in a, in a jail cell, knowing yeah, exactly know. how enforceable it is. Yeah, yeah. What it's it's a little bit like probation. We're putting you on probation. <laughs> You're on probation for the next 12 months until you sign another 1040, and during that 12 month period, if we find out that you did anything peculiar. Guess what? They're throwing you back in the slammer. Why? You can't. You ever been convicted? I've, no, you agreed to it. That's right. You agreed to it when we turned you loose in the first place. You signed your name to it. You said, "Yeah, I'll go. I'll do the time if I, if you catch me at something." Um, again, though, the big lesson here is they need your consent. It's becoming more and more apparent on on a lot of different levels that that is what they need, and they go about devious ways. Oh, yeah. Of getting your consent through presumptions. Yeah. And they're not going to tell you about this because once you figure this out, assuming this is correct, and the logic to me seems it's very hard to escape this. I mean, they're doing multiple definitions in the titles. They do it in the United States Code. They have different. They have the same word defined in different with different definitions throughout the code, United States is one of the terms that I would I would I would guess there's a dozen different definitions in the United States code, and there might be more than that. All right, but there's at least five or six United States. They don't even have a single definition for the term United States. No, they have. How can that be? It's telling us. It's telling us. It is not unreasonable. It's not irrational to ask what definition are you using in this document. Sure, because if I can't know, then I'm not being given due process. Exactly. I'm entitled, uh, again, the nature and cause. Well, you're going to have to explain it to me in language with definitions I'm able to understand. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm some... able to comprehend. I almost hate to say the word understand. <laughs> Somebody, you understand? Yeah, I, I understand nothing. What? What? You remember Schultz? 
Yes, I the, know uh, the nothing. The sergeant in the Hogan's Heroes. Oh, absolutely. I know yeah, that's nothing. Right. I know nothing. Yep. You know, I comprehend nothing. I understand <clears throat> nothing. I agree to nothing. I consent to nothing. Yep. You know, yep. ever. Yep. You know, and now here's something to uh, somebody in the chat room said, uh, I had a bill collector call me for PBS when I was a kid. Well, 18 or 19, you know, 18 or 19 years old. So, so yeah, Anything they'll send a bill collector. As a kid. Huh? Anyone under 50 is a kid. <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> I wouldn't have agreed to that years ago, but now I can see clearly anyone under 50 is a kid. Go ahead. No, that, that's, that's what it says here is, uh, you know, bill collector. So they will, you know, they take it seriously, and they may not, you know, sue you in court, but they will send a bill collector I understand. for you. I understand, and they have, and that can't be fraud. And if it's enough of a donation, they have a right to do this. I mean, say you got really liquored up, and instead of twenty bucks, you said, eh, you know, I pledge twenty thousand dollars to you. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love what I'm seeing on here that much. Uh, well, you know, you probably will end up in court. And uh, yeah, probably divorce court too. Yeah, yeah. Your wife finds out you pledged twenty thousand dollars to PBS. Are you out of your mind? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd had a little Jack Daniels that night, you know. <laughs> and you know how I got when I uh. Well, twenty grand—that's a little more than a little Jack Daniels. <laughs> I've had a little Jack Daniels, and I'd never pledged twenty thousand dollars. Well, if you could, you can get away with it as long as you pledge it in somebody else's name. Ah, there you go. <laughs> there must be some judge that you could say, "Well, I'm my I, my name is Judge Jones, and I'm pledging twenty thousand dollars to PBS." Yes. <laughs> now, of course, you can't. I'd, I'd be amazed if you could get away with that because I, I'm, I would assume that they track. You know, they have reverse oh, sure. phone numbers. I assume, and they know what phone. But if you could get to the judge's telephone. On pledge night, yeah, you could really Walter help PBS. Jones and I'm pledging twenty thousand dollars. You could really <laughs> help PBS, folks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> think about it. <clears throat> yeah, I think we have a caller. All right, let's talk to him. That would be you, caller. Uh, go ahead, caller. Oh, you hear that? They hung up. Might have not been a caller. Might have been somebody calling in. Just to call in and didn't realize they were going to go on the air. Huh? I don't know what to tell you, but I don't know. They hung up on me. Maybe they didn't like the sound of my voice. Well, they should have been able to hear that. Should have been able to pick up on that on the radio. Well, that's they should need a telephone to verify, but maybe they did. <laughs> maybe they needed a telephone call. But in any case, this guy doesn't sound words, the same on the phone. Meanings, I'm not talking definitions are the law of the law. All right. And once you open this can of worms, especially, you know, if you try this at court, the probability that it will succeed is very small. The judge won't put up with it. But if you can do this in paperwork and respond to people, you're, whoever it is that you're litigating with, they send you some paper, say uh, whatever, whatever they write. And the, we live in a world, our legal system is now based on notice pleading. It was once common law based on common law, then it was based on code pleading, and so far as I know, the next after that is notice pleading. And you can look this up on Wikipedia, and just look up notice pleading in Wikipedia, all right? And you'll find that there is text in there, and which is a big surprise to me. I've talked about this notice and right of inquiry. We've talked a fundamental theme tactic strategy that we've talked about from time to time on this program. 
I was much surprised to find that modern pleading, virtually all modern pleading, is notice pleading, which means they've got to send you notice. The whole thing, the first document that they send you, and they say, we're, we're suing you for $500,000. Okay, that's a notice. Well, that also means... Right, that, go ahead. Well, if that's true, which I have no doubt it is, then that that means we have the right of inquiry. That's exactly right. And what do they tell you you have after you receive that document? Well, if you have any questions, give us a call. No, not exactly. They expect you to file an answer. Right. All right? The plaintiff files, the plaintiff and or prosecutor files their first paperwork. It is un incumbent on the defendant to file his answer. Well, what if you can't answer until they've asked you, answered your questions? I have some questions. I don't even understand what's going on here. What do you mean? What's your definition of such and such? It's kind of a tedious situation, but once you get into it, it's endless. Well, and it gets. And if they can see that, if they have any brains, they're going to say, "Get out of here." In, in my experience, and this can be different for everybody, it can vary, but in my experience, it gets tedious for a couple of months, and then it just it just stops. <laughs> That's what it seems to happen to me. Is that you know, I'll get a letter every week, and I'll just send back a letter every week. Mm -hmm. I have more questions. You know, I mean, you didn't answer my yeah, first no. questions, but that's okay, because I have yeah. more. And, yeah. and whatever, and even if you do answer my first questions, I'm going to have questions about your answer. Well, yeah, but for now, I have even more answer. questions anyway. You know, and, and then after a while, it seems to just stop. Well, eventually they figure out this. <laughs> well, this guy, this guy, this is just strange strategies with this guy's playing nearby folks, and you know, but the um, thing is, too, your questions, you know, and I don't want people to get the impression that, and then you can do anything you want, but I I used to be, many years ago, I, I thought, yeah, that, that seems to make sense to me, and they call them kitchen sinkers, and it means, you know, you'll just, I'm going to ask every question. I'm going to yep. ask every question that I, I'm going to send in 50 pages. Oh, yeah, of 50 single, is just a start. Single space. 50 for chapter know. one. <laughs> That's it, yeah. I'm just going to keep it coming. I'm going to do nothing but this 24 hours a day, and I'm just going to keep writing, right? And I'm going to send yeah. them in every day. And, and yeah, you can do that. Uh, but I have found that if you actually think about your questions carefully, yep. you can get by with a whole, whole lot less of them. And you'll get the same Actually, you'll get a better response, and the letters will stop sooner, you know, because not only are they going, okay, he's asking questions. They notice that. That's not a good thing for them, okay? No. You know, he's asking questions. doesn't matter what questions. He's asking questions. This is bad. Yep. But if they see the questions and they go, definition of united, oh, my gosh. Hey, you know what? This is really bad. What do I mean by this state? This state? What? Oh, hey, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> maybe it's better we don't. Let's just, let's lose this guy's address, you know, sort of I thing. understand. Yeah. I understand. Because you know, I've talked about using the this idea of notice and right of inquiry. I've used it on the IRS on two occasions, and the first time I didn't understand what I was doing. It was just dumb luck and the grace of God, all right, that I kind of stumbled into it, and I started asking questions, and they just went away. 
Huh? That was back about 91, 92. And then a second time, I don't remember. I think maybe 2000. I, I don't I don't remember the year on it anymore. But I've got a, a they sent me a CP59 notice, and I responded. And by then I knew what I was doing, or at least I thought I knew what I was doing. I think I know what I'm doing. And I said, ha ha, you send me a notice. I'm going to respond with questions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm going to bet you, you aren't going to be able to answer those questions. And if you don't, you are depriving me of my procedural due process, my right to procedural due process, which consists of notice number one and opportunity to be heard number two. Opportunity to be heard is the opportunity for you to go to a court where you will be found guilty about 98% of the time. I don't want the opportunity to be heard, and therefore I want to control the notice. And I can because I know that under the law they need only send you – they don't have to send complete notice of all relevant facts in law. Because if they did, they might have to send you a phone book full of information every time they filed it for a traffic ticket. I actually looked up they the notice, and it says uh, – and, and this is broad, and it's just very, very simple. And just, you can hear that it doesn't – doesn't have to be much. No. Notice is the legal concept describing a requirement that a party be aware of legal process affecting their rights, obligations, or duties. You don't have to know anything about it. You just have to be aware of it. Yeah. You know, that's all. Right. We don't have to tell you much of anything. I mean, hey, we got a court case here against you. Oh. Yeah, that's basically what it is. And if you want to just play along from that point on, well, that's fine, but my understanding of notice is that it creates your right to ask questions. I, I send you a notice, and it doesn't. The notice, what my research indicated, is the notice need not con- include all relevant facts in the law. It is presumed that you're going to just pick up on some of this stuff and say, "Yeah, yeah, yeah," but I, I think I do owe the IRS fifty thousand dollars. All right, and go along with the program that you will consent, mm-hmm. but. Most of the notice, in fact, every notice I've seen, there is a telephone number on it, and it says if you have any, if it's a clearly a notice, and it says from the utility company, from anybody down on the bottom, if you have any further questions, please call one eight hundred five 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 one two one two or whatever number they have down there. All right, but they admit you have the right to ask questions. I have yet to a notice that does not include a statement that you get to ask questions, only they want you to do over the phone, which creates no record, typically, that's useful in court, and it gives them an opportunity to bamboozle you and wear you out, confuse you, and where you find this, oh, okay, okay, yeah, 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 okay, I get it, I consent. Yep. But you do have the right to ask questions. All right, I well, ask my that, questions that little, on paper. I that, ask mine in writing. I don't want to talk on the phone. That little thing in the bottom there. And the IRS, everything they send you has that, that, uh, you know, call. Mm-hmm. Never mm-hmm. write me. No, no, call. Call this number. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for your convenience. You know what that? What I take that as? I take that as a, a, a kind of Miranda warning. And, uh, you know, you really oh, ought to Miranda pay Miranda warning is a notice. You really ought to pay attention to that, that, hey, guess what? You know, uh, <laughs> you know, you have a right to be quiet. You should. You know, really, it's not a good thing to talk. And when they say, if you have any questions... No, it's not a good thing to make statements. Right. If you have right. any questions... But it's not a bad thing to ask questions. No, other than, you know, once the beating begins, it seems like it's pretty bad. But, you know... Like Miranda. 
the Miranda warning, when you see anything, whenever you see the word warning, it means there's a notice here. Yeah. You are in danger. You are in a certain amount of danger. We're going to call it a warning, but it is a notice. We are giving you notice of a certain amount of danger. We call it a warning, but it is a kind of notice. And they tell you with Miranda, say, you know, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. Well, that teaches everybody to shut up. But what if right then, instead of making statements, you asked questions? Right. Where are we? Are we within are we within the borders of the state of Texas? Are we within the borders of the state of uh, of Oregon? Are we in a state of the union? Are we in the United States of America? Are you a federal officer? I'm going to ask officer? those questions, and with any luck, maybe the officer is or guy. He's got a dash cam on, or he's got a, a video cam on, is a body cam on, and he's getting a recording of this. And now they have evidence from the very beginning. They, they I mean, the, hair, the, hand, the, the handcuffs have not even clicked, and this guy is not going silent. He's got the Miranda warning, but he's not going silent. He's asking questions. Now what? And if they don't answer them, have I been denied procedural due process? Because my understanding is that procedural due process, again, includes notice and opportunity to be heard. And we know, I know, I, my research indicates that the notice need not be complete in, the fa in giving you all facts, relevant facts in law. Nope. If they do give you the right to ask questions, I think it's the right to fill in the blanks. If you don't have enough notice, I don't know what all the facts of the law are, so I'm going to ask. I want to ask, what are all the relevant facts? What are all what are all the relevant laws? All right, I'm going to exercise my right of inquiry. If they don't tell me, if they don't answer my questions, I have not received sufficient notice. I have not consented to the notice the, to the notice being sufficient. And under those circumstances, I don't think they can take you to the opportunity to be heard, which will be a hearing where you'll be found guilty 98% of the time. It's funny because even when they pull you over, they they usually, and I don't know if this is, you know, everywhere all the time, but it seems to be uh, pretty frequent that the cop will say, do you know why I pulled you over? Mm -hmm. Or do you know how fast you were going? They always start with questions. Yeah. Well, you know, no, I don't. Well, you were going 55. Really? And what makes you think that? Well, I, I got this radar gun. Really? When was the last time that thing was calibrated? Yep. <laughs> you know, I'm going to let you go with a warning this time because, uh, mm -hmm. you know, we don't, uh, I don't want to ruin your night. Yeah, that's it. Mm -hmm. Hey, I think we have another caller. I think this time he's really on there. This is, is this going to be, is this one going to be a breather like the last one? No, no, they, I checked. Are they going to speak I even asked for a name. This is Bernard. Oh, Bernard. I know Bernard. Hey, guys. Hey, guys. Good evening to you. And uh, Good evening. Glad to hear you guys on. I went to uh, listen to Frank's show last night, but I didn't. <clears throat> I didn't hear anything but some song on repeat saying you guys were experiencing te technical difficulties. So I, uh, I was praying for you guys that you would get back up and running. Glad to see you guys are. Oh yeah, yeah. It's just a you know, and always. I, I mean, I, I mentioned this always. Try another stream. You know, if one doesn't work, then and if none of them work, try the YouTube. Man, I'd okay, love but to, the uh, YouTube yeah, is is the YouTube talk. the YouTube's not live, is it? Yep, it is. Yep, yep, yep. Mm, live right. right now, YouTube. I mean, we're not. You know, we're neither one of us are using our cameras, but I have a static. Uh, 
you know, the uh, the little deal there on the front page that tells everybody what's on the air right now. That's what's on the YouTube screen and our, and the audio. So. Well, for what it's worth, you had to send me a link to wherever I'd, I'd post it on my blog where people could see. I haven't written anything on my blog for three months now, practically. But you've got you've got tired. election lag, huh? Yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> just blown, just wasted by the hey, election. Hey, something else we have new, and this is just uh, you know, I keep forgetting about it because there's really on a, you know, there's not that many people that that use this, but there's a few, and that's why we keep it around and actually have expanded it where you can listen on the phone. And we've had that since the network started, but usually it's always been only eight hours a day when there's live broadcasts, not for repeats or anything like that. And now we have one for AVR1 and AVR2, and they're both 24-7, so that's real cool. How many people can get on the phone at the same time? I don't know, like 100. Ooh. Which, you know, okay. there's we never come, you know, I think the most no, I've ever seen that, listening on the phone... You know, yeah, when I we was... first started the network back in 2004, a lot more people actually listened that way. I mean, I had quite a few listeners that mm -hmm. would actually put on their speakerphone and just, you know, it would be like a radio for them. Yep. And, uh, you know, now there's less people, you know, doing that. So, But there's still people out there, you know, that that's all they've got or they're in a jam and that's what they can do. And, you know, so it's not really extra work for me. I just... You know, setting it up one time and then it's there. So yeah, until it breaks down and then it's then it is extra work. Well, yeah, but the, the thing is, what, what the I'm hell? how did I do this? <laughs> what, I I'm this at, what I'm getting at is, you know, if one thing doesn't work for you here, try something else because there's several different you know uh, things that are actually not even connected to each other, and they uh, one of them ought to be working, unless of course. You know, they've swooped in with the black helicopters and killed me, and then probably not. They won't kill you. Okay. They're going to haul yeah, you off for think about experiments. That. Experiments, okay. <laughs> me too, right. probably. All right. So they'll keep us around for a period of time. What Did you have a question you wanted to pose, Bernard? You know, I, I did, and, and I wanted to let you know, uh, first off, since you brought up the the, the recent notice, the semi-recent notice you got from the IRS uh, that you replied on June 19, 2009, yeah. and uh, I read all 27 pages of that, and uh, it's, I mean, I, I personally thought it was fantastic. I mean, I think you overdid it. But, I did. Uh, you know. Let, well, let, you know, I do, I overdo that. things, and that's just my nature on one on one from one perspective, but once I get into this, I mean, the detail is, it, what is a, what, I can't think of the name of the Mandelbrot, those mathematical symbols, uh, designs that you look into it and they, they just become more and more and more and more complex. Do you know what I'm talking about? Mandelbrot mm -hmm. uh, brought yeah. equations and they create designs and when you look closer it, you see the design just gets more and more complex well i'm inclined to do that with paperwork and i agree that i get too carried away with this but a friend of mine oh, he I used the same procedure and he only had five questions right and they weren't particularly profound me i'm trying to dot the i's and cross all the t's and uh, i get kind of fantastic about it to some degree he just had to, he, he, he used the strategy with five questions they kept coming at him well, probably a dozen, 15 times. And every time it was from a new IRS office, they, he'd, just, he'd get something from Austin, Texas, 
and he'd send the questions. He wouldn't hear from Austin anymore, but then he'd get something. He'd get something from an office in Oklahoma, send him the five questions, and they'd just disappear. And then he'd get something from an office in Pennsylvania and Utah, anyone around the country. And it took him probably 18 months to get rid of these people, right? But eventually they just went away. Man, no the IRS ever is... asked his question. No one ever answered his questions. And they weren't particularly profound, and there weren't a multitude of them, which I'm inclined to do. He only posed five. Man, they've circled around all the way to Medford, to me, with their offices. You know, started mm -hmm. in Ogden, uh, Utah, and went somewhere yep. else. And then, man, they're they're right here in Medford, Oregon. And, you know, so they, uh, I don't know if that's the last stop or they're just passing through. But for right now, they seem to well, have, uh, you know, not uh, not continued. Because, you know, I'm kind of like your friend there. I've I've learned to limit it to... Under 10 questions is what I try mm -hmm. to keep it at, is under 10 yep. questions. And, you know, and I make, reasonable. I try to make my questions as to the point, and no, this is for real. I'm asking jurisdictional questions here that yep. need to be answered because we yep. can't proceed until we figure out jurisdiction. Yeah. And I know. I mean, we can say, well, you know, I think I know, but no, I'm pretty sure I know that the IRS is misapplying the statutes. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm I'm I am absolutely confident of that. Just from reading the statutes and looking at what they do, they're you know they're not because you know for it's it's funny because you know through all this we all go through our our learning experience where we believe one thing and we're really kind of sure about it. Like man, the IRS is unconstitutional. I believed that, but I don't anymore because it's not really unconstitutional. It's just illegal. It's unconstitutional in some places. Yeah, it's unconstitutional right. the way they are applying it. But if they well, would stick to I think who the IRS is completely constitutional within the territories, administrative districts, states of the United States. I believe it is almost unconstitutional or only constitutional in a limited sense within the states of the Union. And within the states of the Union, you're under Article One of the Constitution. They can only, uh, within uh, within a territory, they can do anything they want to do. Yeah. Right? So it's constitutional. This is when you challenge an act, when you challenge a particular law, an act, whatever, and you say this is unconstitutional. The court will 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 weigh your argument on the on two bases, and the first one is is it unconstitutional on its face? Means it facially unconstitutional. Means it's unconstitutional. Any place you go, it's always unconstitutional. It's wrong, 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 wrong. And that's what people try to prove, and they almost yeah. never succeed. The alternative is it's unconstitutional as applied in this case to me. Right. All right. And that's where they may go along with you. And to me, the deal is. If I say it's unconstitutional on its face, they're going to say, no, it's not. They won't say it expressly, but they won't say it's unconstitutional on its face because their law is if it, if it can be constitutional anywhere, if there's any conceivable circumstance where it might be constitutional, it's constitutional. Well, it's absolutely constitutional within the territories. Government can do anything it wants in the territories. It only has limited powers in the states of the Union. So what I'm going to do, I can't prove that it's unconstitutional because it is constitutional within the territories. Yep. But 
if I try to argue, but if I argue in my opinion that it is unconstitutional as applied to me, why? Because as I give notice on this program every time, I'm working within the borders of the state of Texas, a state of the union. I'm creating my evidence here where I'm saying, look, I'm not in a territory. I am within the state of the union. Does the IRS law apply to me within the state of the union? And I don't think it does. If you can control your venue, your plane, um, I think that's uh, that's when you say it doesn't apply. I'm within the state of the union. IRS law doesn't apply at this venue, this plane of jurisdiction, and therefore it's unconstitutional as applied to me in this particular. Well, it might work. You know, it doesn't guarantee it, but it might work. Bernard, you probably got more to say, and you're not having much success saying it just yet. <laughs> I uh, never mind hearing what you guys talk about, but yeah, my uh, I had a few things that I that I often ponder about, and you guys might be able to run with them and maybe even succeed in answering them. But uh, the first line of questioning is is uh, you know say say you're a guy you're you, you issued a social security number at birth at the hospital, um, your parents you know signed you up for one, uh, they pledged you for to to be a part of the social security program, um, you 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 ignorantly used the social security number there thereby supporting the presumption that you are acting in a territorial um uh, a territorial place within the united states and uh maybe even acting as an officer within one of the territories and therefore subject to the to the you know the millions of regulations and laws that are constitutionally being applied to such and such officer in such and such territory how do you go from being in that situation with those presumptions lying upon you, doing being that you did it ignorantly, and then pulling a 180, what does that I look think, like? I is think you possible? have to ask them. You know, I mean, I'm gonna, I'm gonna always, whatever they send you to get this started. There's a piece of paper typically that gets the festivities started. It is a notice, and they will say, here's such and such and such and such. All right, start asking questions. That's where I'm gonna go with this. One of the things that I've observed over the years is this. You know, people talk about how your birth certificate condemns you to be trapped in this in this state, this territory, this this bizarre jurisdiction. I don't think that's true. I think it can, but I don't think it necessarily does. Social Security can, not doesn't necessarily do that. Driver's license can, doesn't necessarily do that. And what I'm trying to get to is this: they have a multitude of different devices that will drag you into this state. All right. And they keep on running them at you. It's not as if you took a birth certificate, one time you referred to it, now you're trapped forever. I think you're trapped on a transaction-by-transaction transaction basis. And you've got to do something that's – if you're doing something today, got a brand-new transaction, all right, something else is going on. You've got to do something that they can use as a basis to presume you have voluntarily entered this state. And if you expressly object to it and say, I object. I'm not in this state. I do that every program. I do my disclaimer at the beginning of every program. You know, it, I think this is transaction by transaction because if it wasn't, they would have trapped you when they got the birth certificate. They don't need the driver's license. They don't need all the rest of this stuff. If they've got you one time with a birth certificate, your goose is cooked. It's what are you using in this particular transaction that allows them to presume that you are in this state, meaning in the territory, the administrative district, whatever. Now, and once you make a habit of objecting, I said, no, I'm not, I'm not there.
because I think it's still all voluntary. I think it's all consensual. They have to presume you have voluntarily and consensually entered into this state. I think that's true. I don't know it to be I, I can't tell you it's God's truth, but that's what I think. I think it's true. Now, Bernard, were you asking like a 180, like getting rid of a Social Security number and getting rid of your driver license or any of that or just in general? Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, in, in uh, being aware of the presumptions that are being foisted upon you by using these instruments that they've created within their jurisdiction, within their yep. territory, mm-hmm. um, and 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 then and then moving from still having those instruments, still still having those affixed to your your number, your birth certificate, or whatever, but choosing not to use them anymore. They're still there. They could still be there with your alias, with your with your you know, your, your legal person or whatever, but you never step into that capacity or at least never admit to them when they send you notice and when you use your right of inquiry to find out if that notice um, is first and foremost proper or if they have jurisdiction over you. You, you never actually step into that presumed uh, Well, and, and you know, that, that that's that my kind pledge. of, that is my kind of point of view these days on that because, I mean, 15, 18 years ago, I sent in all, hey, get rid of my social security number. I'm not only part of this and blah, 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 cut my license in half and sent it back in. And none of it, may, it makes any difference to them. They, they, they don't care. They just, yeah, yeah, whatever. We can't do that. Forget it. And they, you know, I couldn't make them do it. So my now understanding is that, you know, okay, I just go about doing what I do. And if somebody says, hey, you, because you did that, really? That's not what it meant to me. That's not what I agreed to. I didn't agree mm-hmm. to that. What? So right. what? Oh, I, I got a driver license. Now, my understanding is that allows me to go down the road without getting pulled over every five minutes. Okay, that's what it means to me. What does it mean to you? Uh, did I get Because I wasn't notified anywhere that I was giving up a whole pile of rights anywhere. So that's not what it meant to me. Well, yeah, but right here you... You know, something else. Oh, well, you checked this thing. You said you're a resident. Yes, yeah, so I live in this in the state mm-hmm. of the union. What does that mean to you? Yeah. You know, I, make them start ponying up. What do you What do you mean? What does it mean yep. to you? You're so you want to tell everybody out there that hey, guess what? When you get your social security card, uh, that everybody requires that you, you know for you to get a job, basically, uh, or a driver license that. You know, if you don't have one, man, it's nothing but one hassle after another, and and yeah. live in fear. By the way, uh, you're telling me that somewhere travel in fear. Yeah, some you know exactly. have to be fearful all the time. Only when you slide right. in the beside behind the driver's wheel and then the steering wheel. Yeah, but I mean, it, so are you want to tell everybody that everybody gave up all their God-given rights when they had these things? Is that what you're yeah. saying? This all means, mm-hmm. you know, that is part of a question. Is that what you meant? Did you mean we all gave up our rights, uh, you know, for this? Well, again, I think what I think what Bernard is asking is how do you permanently step out of the system? Stop breathing. Is there a, is there a is there a single magic bullet or formula or whatever? It ends every pretense that you are in this in this state. Send is it to me if you exist, want. 
I don't think it does. Send it to me. I think this is a transaction. I think, in fact, that you can perhaps step in and step out of your convenience. I'm not saying that's true, but I think I could be in this state right now if it's convenient for me to be there. And then as soon as I get done with that, I can jump back out and back into these states. Now, is that wishful thinking or more fantasy or what is it? I don't know. It's just... It's a thought. It's a possibility. Well, the courts have but ruled. But I think you, the point is you've got to recognize every one of these little traps every time you see them, and then you have to expressly object to that particular trap, that particular offer. Not even a trap exactly, but an offer, an implied offer. Do you want to do business in this state? You got any Federal Reserve notes in your pocket? Okay, come on down. In fact, if you're using Federal Reserve notes, you're probably in this state unless you can effectively object and say, no, I'm not. I never intended that. Well, it's just like, you know, the courts have ruled many times that status is determined by conduct or usage, meaning, okay, Mm -hmm. so I got a driver license, so my car has a registration plate on it. Okay, so I have insurance. So that means that I can engage in commerce over the road if I feel like it. It doesn't mean every time I get in my car and go down the road, I am engaging in a regulated activity. Well, here's another point. You talk about conduct. All right. When you're engaged in this, you use the term, and I don't know if you were... Conduct and usage. Okay, conduct and usage. Conduct and usage does not necessarily require intent. Conduct is just... You know, did you kick the dog? Yeah, I kicked him. Well, was it intentional? No, it wasn't intentional. We don't care if it was intentional. Did you kick the dog? There's an offense called kicking the dog. And whether you knew you were kicking the dog and you kicked him intentionally or you kicked him by accident, there's no one, it doesn't make any difference. Conduct, we don't care about your intent. <clears throat> what I'm getting to is that if they have laws that say your conduct will determine your status, Well, that conduct does not include your intent. It's just, did you do it? You might have been drunk. You might have been asleep. You might have been sleepwalking. Did you do it? That's the only question in conduct. In a crime, you have to have intent. All right, intent. So my point is, intent may be the critical element here, and you must be prepared by your conduct. Did you just use Federal Reserve notes? Then it's presumed that well, you were in this state. Well, but what if you express your intent? No, I did not intentionally step into this state. Well, it's like, okay, so my conduct, I got in the car, I'm going down the road, my car has a registration plate on it. So the cop rightfully presumes, well, he must be engaged in commerce. He must be engaged in the regulated activity that I'm out here regulating. And I see something I don't like, I'm pulling him over. Okay, fine. So he comes walking up, and he's he hasn't done anything wrong to me yet, because he has every reason to believe he's doing right. But when he open, when, when he talks to me, and I say, well, uh, what, what's up? He goes, well, blah, 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 blah. It's like, well, wait a minute. See, this is where usage. Do you see any passengers? Do you see any any usage? Am I using this as a commercial entity? I'm not engaged in the regulated activity. Thank you. You know, it's see, one of the things. But one of the things I suspect about this is, as you said, what's the cop do when he comes up to the vehicle? Do you know why I pulled you over? Yeah, he asks a question. 
Now, if if we assume that my notion about notice and right of inquiry is correct, the cop is making an inquiry. Right? What notice did he receive that empowered him to make that inquiry? The registration plate. I don't think so. The license plate. Right. That's what I call it. Yeah. Okay. He's, he's following you down the road at 60 miles an hour. I don't think he's looking at the registration, uh, which I'm used to seeing in the windshield well, the yeah. car and the rest of that sort of thing. Uh, he's looking at the license plate. I think it is maybe true that the license plate is perceived to be a notice. It creates his right of inquiry. He says, look, he's got a commercial license plate on the vehicle. That means I get to ask him some questions. I think it might work like that, but I don't have any evidence to support that I think it does. I, I think it does. And, uh, well, and, and just to know that I, I call the license plate the registration plate because it actually is your registration number on that plate. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, it's not attached to your license, which your driver license at all. But anyway, but, yeah, I do believe that is what gives him the presumption that you're engaged in the activity he regulates. And he gets to ask questions because you are posting a notice on the back end of your car. Sure. Now, what if you had other notices on the back end of your car? For example, this vehicle is operating within uh, on a right-of-way within, uh, within the state of the Union, within the United States of America, or within a state of the Union. Yeah. What if you had, you know, if you wrote, uh, what if this license is only good... Uh, when I'm engaged in commerce and I'm not engaged in commerce. Well, I, I don't had, know where to go with this, but I'm trying. What I'm trying to get to is if they can read one notice on the back of your vehicle, I think they can read more. Well, I used to when I was traveling around without a license plate or registration plate or license or anything. I did because I figured, you know, eventually I'm going to get pulled over. They're going to impound my car, right? You know, or they're going to arrest me and leave my car on the side of the road. And then, you know, to keep it from getting towed. Because I found out that uh, some information that I really think that how they, once they arrest you, your car is now considered abandoned. I think it may be considered abandoned when you get out of the vehicle. Yeah, or that. I, I think it may even be considered, once there's no one behind the steering wheel, I think it may be considered abandoned even then. And that's hard to believe, and I wouldn't bet that what I just said was true, but again, I think it's a possibility. I put it. I put a little notice. This is a, like index card size with bigger, bigger letters because it was pretty simple. This car is not abandoned, you know, and uh, I gave yeah. a phone number and I and it just had it in the back window of the of my truck. And that's what I never did get pulled over or arrested. So I don't know if it actually would have worked or whatever. But, uh, you know, that's I. so, yeah, I do think that notices are, uh, you know, if they can read one, they can read more than one. And when you come to the car, and even if the notices are conflicting, right? Right. Right. It it may be that it causes a certain amount of confusion. It may still create his right of inquiry, but his right of inquiry has got to say, well, what are you doing right now? Are you acting in commerce or are you within a state of the union? Well, I don't know that he's going to say that. (laughs) But I I don't assume that he's going to actually say that. But that if there's two separate notices, on the back of the vehicle, and one says you're in commerce, and the other one says you're not. He has to probably try to figure out, well, which one of these notices applies. And even if he doesn't, it's a kind of confusion where, assuming the hypothesis was correct in the first place. 
Well, now the, does the he lo- want to take this into court? Does the judge really want to see this? Do they want to see the, the dash cam and the rest of that of this car that's got two notices on the back end that are convi- that are contradictory, even if they're contradictory? Somebody's got to resolve that, which means they have to admit that the license plate, which might mean that they have to admit that the license plate is a notice. Do they want to make that admission? Do they well, want to get two hundred bucks or five hundred bucks out of you bad enough where they're going to make the admission on the public record that the license plate on the back of the vehicle is a is a notice? They want to make that admission, or would they rather find you keep the five hundred bucks and get out of here? Well, yeah, because they, I don't think it's the plate. Preface. There's no answer. I don't think the plate is a notice that I am in commerce. It's a notice that I can be involved in commerce okay. if I okay. choose. So okay. if there's another yeah, notice saying something as simple as not engaged in commerce at this time, Yeah. well, okay, but you could be. Yeah, I could be, but I'm not. So, you know, I could be flying an airplane too, but I'm not. Yep. You know, so there you go. And and the they have those old. they have those little things you can you can with a little suction cup that you can put in your window. <laughs> yeah. All right, it says baby on board. It's right. a yellow warning sign. It's uh, you know, diamond-shaped warning sign. Baby on board. Not engaging Why commerce. Why not one that says not in commerce? <laughs> and you That's can, a good idea. You can put it on the window uh, when you're not in commerce and take it off when you are. Yep. And, and hey, yeah. that's easy. You know, because it's like, you see any passengers? Do you see me hauling any freight? Mm-hmm. No? Okay, what's your presumption that I am now in commerce? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and you don't even have to what say I, commerce. You can just, and I, and I honestly think it's better to say the regulated activity. Because I believe it's commerce, and it probably is, but I don't know that for a fact. But I do know it's a regulated activity. Well, another thing in commerce... The word interstate commerce does not, or the term interstate commerce does not appear in the Constitution. They refer to commerce among the several states, and they mean states of the Union. I don't believe that commerce among the states is the same thing as interstate. I think interstate commerce takes place within the territories, in the territorial jurisdiction, the districts, whatever, states of the United States. But I don't think that it comes, I don't think that it takes place in the, uh, in, in the states of the union. I tend to agree with that. So, Bernard, what else you got? I know you're trying to get something else out, a question or comment or whatever. Uh, oh, yeah, I have a comment and then a question, and then I'll, I'll probably get off and let you guys chat about it because I know we're almost done here. You guys are awesome for hanging out with me. It's my favorite night of the week, by the way. Um, if a cop were to approach me and, you know, I have a plate on my car or whatever, I would ask him what led him to believe that I was engaging in a regulatable activity and uh, when he said, you know, you're driving this or that, okay, uh, sounds good. So did you want to write me a citation so that I could have a promise to appear and then we can have the judge arbitrate between us? And then he'll probably say yes or, you know, give me your license. I didn't bring my license because I wasn't planning on doing any commerce or regulatable activities. Mm-hmm. Let me just give you my name, address, date of birth, and then uh, we can talk about it with the magistrate. And uh, so he writes the citation or he doesn't. And he says, okay, well, I'm going to have to take you in. Well, you know, then immediately, according to Texas law, you know, you, you, you request to see a magistrate immediately 
and then you show up on special appearance. You tell the magistrate right then and there, hey, I'm first and foremost, I'm here on special appearance. I'm, I'm, I'm going to challenge uh, in personam and subject matter, and I want to know where you guys got authority to do all this stuff. You know, so right away you're, you're going to hit them. But they probably won't do that. They'll probably write you a citation. And, um, and then you can show up in special appearance via writing. And you can uh, you can immediately you know you can you can uh, challenge their subject matter jurisdiction and therefore they won't be able to get in persona jurisdiction. From what I yeah you say that, but what do you think the threat. chances are that the strategy will work? That the that the police officer won't arrest you for not being able to present uh, a driver's license. Well, that's possible. I mean, they sometimes I'm sure they're told, look, some of these people are a lot of trouble, and if they're they're going to cost us a fortune, it's going to cost us twenty grand to collect a five hundred dollar ticket out of this guy. Don't drag him in, and if he's not dealing drugs, hasn't shot anybody, not carrying dead bodies in the vehicle, just leave, give him a warning, and get him out of here. That might work. But the way I expect this is, if you're being arrested by a municipality. They're going to plan on taking you to court, and they're going to find you guilty no matter what you do. And they're going to bet that you will not effectively appeal. And they don't mind if you do appeal. They welcome the appeal because of my understanding is once you appeal, the judge is off the hook. You take it to higher court, he's no longer liable to you on this uh, on the situation. So the way I'm inclined to, the way I expect this to work, and I'm not saying it's true, but the way I expect it, I don't care what I say. I expect them to ignore what I have to say at the trial court level, the municipal court level. Give me, uh, give me some jail time. Give me a ticket. Give me a fine. Give me something. But I don't expect these arguments to work at that level, but they may work, and we've observed this for years, after you appeal. And usually it was on the second appeal when people, if you got your ducks in a row, they'd say, okay, you're, you know, we're going to reverse this and or uh, blah, blah, blah. On, on the second level of appeal, that's when they would actually pay attention, of course, and pay attention. If you have sufficient persistence to go that far, they think you might go further than that, so they'll turn you loose. Now, is that consistent with your experience, or do you agree with it or disagree, Bernard? I mean, I'm, I'm thankful to the Lord that I haven't really had too much experience in it. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of studying beforehand so that when I do, uh, you know, if, if, if it ever comes, then I'll, I'll be able to learn more. Uh, more through experience, but already have some mm-hmm. basic understanding to to test and stuff like that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm lucky that I haven't. Uh, you know, I, I I try to you know keep, keep uh, you know keep keep out of sight, and I, I don't want to be in the purview of the state any more than I already am. But um, that brings me to my next question, which is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a 1099, or at least I was when I originally started uh, offering my consulting service to. Uh, an individual who has a business that is a, you know, it's a state franchise business. It, it has all the licensing and stuff like that. Um, and his accountant, she finds, she, she, uh, she, she constantly sends in information about me without my consent every single year, even though I've only signed, or I don't even think I've signed any forms with them, but they send in information about me via 1099 to, uh, you know, the, the internal revenue service. And uh, I was wondering is, let's say hypothetically, uh, there's a person, you know, that's offering his private service to, uh, you know, a company or whatever, and the company agrees, and they they have a contract, and the accountant goes and they file information about this person specifically, and doesn't, they don't ask if they can do that, 
if the IRS comes after that person and, and there's a harm attached, does that person go after the IRS, which doesn't seem smart or wise, or does he go after the accountant? Well, I don't know. It's going to depend on it'll depend on the, you know the exact circumstances. Uh, you can say that is a broad you know disclaimer, but from my perspective, I can't give you an answer on this without seeing the paperwork. To me, it's all about the paperwork. And if I want to, if I want to respond to some a question like this, I need to see, especially what is the first paperwork. Are you saying that you are continuing to do business with this guy, and they're sending a new notice to the IRS over a period of several years because you're doing business over a period of several years? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, they're they're sending in information saying, hey, we're, we're but it's not just because you did business account. with them three years ago or five years ago. You're still doing business with them, and they're sending the notice into the IRS. Mm-hmm. The only thing yeah. I could see yeah, is if when year. you when you first sign a uh, you know some kind of contractual agreement, you know, as a private contractor or whatever, you know, uh, slide into it, you know, a non-disclosure uh, clause. You know, I that, wouldn't necessarily say non-disclosure. What I would do is I would establish that all of my work was being done within the borders of a state of the union. Yeah, you could do that, you know, right. because a lot of... Uh, I'd put that in my paperwork. Oh, I'd say, I'm within the United States of America. Where are you? Well, I think that's a better idea because, you know, the thing is, most employers or people you're going to contract with are going to look at that and they're going to go, nothing wrong with that. Of course you are. No. no you know, because that's where they think they are. Yeah. You know, yeah. everybody thinks that's where they are. Nobody walks around going, oh, well, haha. You know, I'm in a military district of the federal government. <laughs> you know, nobody yeah. nobody says that. Nobody believes yeah. that. They all think, no, I'm in the State of the Union, of course. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. But if you put it in there, it could now, later be a good thing for you. And if you put it in there, here is where the problem is going to turn up. The accountant or whoever's reading your document, when you say that I'm within a state of the union called the state of Texas, for example, if that's what you want to say on there, when they send a notice to the IRS, they're going to say you are in TX with a zip code, right? They're not going to take the notice or they're not going to take the information expressly off your document. Even though you said the United States of America, the state of Texas, what they're more likely to do, they're just going to, because they don't really know they're doing anything wrong. They just say, well, there's only there's only space on the form for a two-letter TX. We can't write the state of Texas, and it means the same thing. They're going to assume that. You're going to have to be prepared to argue at a later date that's not the information you provided, and you may even have to be prepared to sue the accountant for misrepresenting your information to the IRS. I told you I'm within a state of the union. You said I'm in TX. I'm not in TX. I'm within a state of the union called the state of Texas. Now, where is it going to go? Well, I don't know, but, you know, again, this is hypothetical. Most of this is hypothetical. This is theory, and maybe it's valid and maybe it's not, but you have to be prepared if you're going to get into this and play this game. You have to be prepared. This is a contact sport, you know. This is not, uh, this is not chess or checkers exactly. This is football. Uh, maybe even what is that one the Indians used to play with the clubs and the uh, lacrosse? Uh, lacrosse, yeah. Boy, that's a brutal, brutal sport. Yeah, I know. And it can be. So you have to be prepared because there may be a price 
And if you don't play exactly right, and even if you do, this is always a crapshoot. People look at the law as if the law, oh, the law is set in stone. The law is one of some of the most flexible things you'll ever see in the world. Hey, you know what's not flexible? It's the the clock. Really? Does that mean we are already into the next, into the third hour? (laughs) We are. We are. It snuck up on us. Yeah, it did. All right, Bernard, thank you for your call. And Frank Thanks, and I are out of time tonight, so we this is uh, this is our, our the end of our American Independence Hour for today, and we will be back, good Lord willing, next Tuesday from eight to ten. We hope you'll tune in at that time. In the meantime, the good Lord bless you and me and Frank and Bernard. Good night. Thanks, Al. Thank you. Political, religious, and medical views presented on various shows heard on American Voice Radio Network are not necessarily the views held by the management of American Voice Radio and are not presented as an endorsement by this network. All statements heard on American Voice Radio are the sole responsibility and opinion of those who speak the particular statement.
their body needs clean water to function properly. Pure is the cleanest water, also known as distilled water. Some frauds pushing fake science and ignorant people repeating their disinformation and half-truths will tell you distilled water leaches minerals from the body. What they fail to tell you is distilled water only attracts and flushes inorganic minerals from your body. These are minerals your body cannot process and can interfere with your proper body functions. Distilled water does flush these inorganic materials from your body and is an effective and natural way to cleanse your body. ABR sells a distiller that distills one gallon every three and a half hours. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com, click on the Superstore, go to the distiller, check the pricing and how to order, and watch the video explaining in detail why distilled water is pure water. Hey, hey, just obey. 
right, good evening all. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You are listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is Tuesday, January 31st, 2017, and it's about nine minutes after 8 p.m. Pacific time. And uh, if all that works out where you're at, we're live. 541-826-0953. That will get your voice on the air. You will be live. You will be recorded. And you can participate that way. But if you'd rather not participate that way, then uh, you can go to our website. I, I, I'm I'm a little distracted because I'm hearing this like whining noise, and it's uh, probably a fan going bad or something. But theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com, avrn1.com or avrn.tv. Okay, easy. There you will find everything you need to know about this network, and uh, you'll also notice that. We have a chat room. You can go in there and you can participate that way. I've been participating in there, and um, I, I will less right now. But I'll be back in there at the break, and I do watch it. I I can read and talk. I just can't type and talk. Okay, but anyhow, that's all there for you. Anyhow, and everything. Every way you can listen to this is on the uh, website, of course. It's not on AmericanVoiceRadio.com yet because I haven't... Well, I'm actually not finished updating. And that's how I update. I take one of the pages and I update it. And then I take that page and basically clone all the other pages to look like it. And there it is. You know, that way they're all the same. Uh, I find that much easier than going back and forth between the two pages going, okay, now what did I put here? Okay, now let me put that over here. and I just do it all in one big shot. And I'm not done updating yet, so I haven't done that shot. Anyway, I guess it's time to uh, get, you know, down to it here, what's going on. I'm hearing, oh, okay. That's because, uh, see videos don't you love these video sites video sites where videos come on and they won't stop and you don't know it's a video site you see it's supposed to be a news site but uh anyhow there is a uh down in los angeles apparently uh there's one dead and three wounded and uh stabbings and an officer involved shooting in hollywood los angeles police at the scene of an Officer-involved shooting at that jack-in-the-box at Sunset Boulevard and Ivar Avenue in Hollyweird, Monday, January 31st, 2017. Reports from the scene indicate that four people were involved in the incident, with three being taken to the hospital and one person dead at the scene. Wow. Sounds like a bad night at the box, huh? I mean, really? You know, go out for a hamburger, end up dead? Hey, but that's L.A. Uh, let's see. Los Angeles police officers fatally shot a man inside a Hollyweird fast food restaurant after he allegedly stabbed multiple people. See, folks, this is why it's important. To stay. This is why cops carry guns, and this is why you should carry guns, too. You see, think about yourself. So there you are. You're sitting having a hamburger, and some nut with a knife comes in and starts stabbing people. 
Well, you know, I mean, you know, some people can deal with a guy with a knife, even whether they have a knife or not. You know, I mean, hey, last I remember, it's been a long time since I've eaten at a Jack in the Box, but from what I remember, they give you these plastic trays. And uh, i tell you what, uh, let's say a guy with a knife meets plastic tray to his neck, well, that could be a bad day for him, which it was a bad day for him anyway because the cops came and shot him. But you see, this is why we should all be armed, folks. Guy comes running in, decides to start stabbing people. Well, he gets about one stab in before he's dead. You know, that whole knife to a gunfight thing? Mm-hmm. So they shot this guy after he stabbed multiple people. Why is that? Because nobody at the restaurant had a gun, and it takes the cops a little while to get there. I mean, hey, you got to hand it to these cops to get there while the guy was still there stabbing people. I mean, that's pretty quick. Not quick enough, but pretty quick. The shooting was reported about 2 p.m. Man, this is in the middle of the afternoon. It's like, wow. All right. CNN reporter uh, Mavir Reston, who works out of the network's building on Sunset, witnessed some of the chaos reporting on Twitter that she saw a male suspect trying to stab people. Unclear how many stabbing victims there are, but suspect ran down Sunset Boulevard trying to stab people outside our CNN office in Hollyweird. Huh. Well, welcome to the big city, I suppose, huh? See, it's different in Chicago. See, all the thugs down in Chicago, they got guns. See, they don't mess around with knives. They got too many Mexicans down in, uh, you know, California. See, they, they still got this knife thing, you know? And uh, up in Chicago... You know, they got guns, okay? Man. Eh, it's not funny for the people who got stabbed, you know? I mean, but... <laughs> you want to live in L.A., you want to live in Chicago, you want to live in these places, well, you know, there are advantages, I understand. Convenience, advantages, better paying jobs, all that good stuff, but uh, there's also drawbacks. Like the whole dying while you're trying to have a hamburger thing, see? But I suppose that could happen anywhere. Well, I'm going to move on to another story. And to me, I would say this is a great opportunity for Donald Trump to say, ah, you're fired 900 times, okay? That's what I would do. I really would. You know what? You don't like my policies. You don't like working here. Well, you know, I want to help you. You're fired. Now you can go find a better job working for somebody you like a lot better. Hey, maybe the Clintons are hiring, huh? You could go work for them. About 900 United States State Department officials signed an internal dissent memo protesting a travel ban by the U.S. President Donald Trump on refugees and travelers from seven terrorist countries that happen to be Muslim-majority countries. A source familiar with the document said on Tuesday in a rebellion against the new president's policies. A new rebellion? Uh, so nobody explained to these people what commander-in-chief means? Right? They don't understand what you serve at the pleasure of the president. They don't get what that means? This is the State Department. These are the people that are representing U.S. policy to foreign governments. 
Ah, that is made by the president. Well, it's actually made by Congress, but it is enforced by the president. And you're nothing but a minion. And if you don't like your job, well, by golly, you shouldn't be made to keep it. You should be set free. A senior State Department official confirmed the memorandum had been submitted to Acting Secretary of State Tom Shannon through the department's dissent channel, a process in which officials can express unhappiness over policy. White House spokesman Sean Spicer said on Monday he was aware of the memo, but warned career diplomats that they should either get with the program or they can go. I think that's that's great advice. Look, you don't like what we're doing, then beat it. You're not in charge. You lost. Oh, let's take a phrase from your favorite president, the almost black, communist, homosexual, pretend Muslim, Barack Hussein Obama. Elections have consequences. Okay? You're not in charge anymore. Beat it. You don't like it. You know what? Donald Trump shouldn't even wait for them to resign. He should fire them all because they're just going to undermine everything he tries to do. A draft of the dissent memo seen by Reuters argued that the executive order would sour relations with affected countries. Hmm. Sour relations with the affected countries. Well, there's seven countries, and five of them we are bombing now, okay? I don't know, man. Uh, I'm thinking a travel ban sours relations a lot less than dropping bombs on people, don't you? I mean, nothing sours a relationship like blowing up everybody. You know, that just puts a damper on the whole evening when you start dropping bombs on people. It's Sours the relationship. It really does. So I don't know what this dimwit's talking about. Sour the relationships? What kind of relationship do we have with Iraq? What kind of Syria? Iraq? Libya? Yemen? Somalia? Really? What kind of relations are we having there? This seems pretty sour to me already. So I wouldn't worry about that. They also say it will inflame anti-American sentiment. Well, now, wait a minute. Inflame anti-American sentiment? You mean with the people that have already declared that America is the great Satan and it has to be destroyed? You mean them? Gee, uh, I'm thinking they're already inflamed. Uh, Wait a minute. What was that whole Arab Spring thing? What are all these Allah Akbar, boom, boom, boom? What is all that? They're not inflamed already? Uh, I wouldn't worry about that either because, well, we're already there. And it will hurt those who have sought to visit the United States for humanitarian reasons. What a pile of steaming horse poo. I mean, honestly, really? hurt those who sought to visit the United States for humanitarian reasons. What does that even mean? What do you mean, humanitarian reasons? You mean you're going to get killed in your own country? 
You mean you're a refugee. Well, you're not visiting, okay? That's not a visit. Visitors leave. These people have no intention of ever leaving. It said the policy runs counter to core American values of non-discrimination, fair play, and extending a warm welcome to foreign visitors and immigrants. Every one of these people who signed this need to be fired, folks. Core American values? I'm sorry. I don't know what core America they're thinking about, but core American values are Christian principles. And Christian principles are very discriminating. Okay? Homosexuals dancing around in their panties is not allowed. Okay? It's an abomination. That is a core American value. Fair play? You mean fair play like Congress? Congressmen get to engage in insider trading and it's not against the law for them because they've exempted themselves, but if you or I did it, we're going to prison? You mean fair play like that? You mean fair play like Finicum getting shot dead up in Oregon and then everybody being found not guilty, meaning he was an innocent man they shot. Nobody has gone to prison, including our scumbag lesbian governor here in Oregon. Fair play like that, you mean? Oh, we got lots of fair play. We got Waco fair play. We got Ruby Ridge fair play. We got all kinds of fair play going on all over the place. And this is a core American value. Extending a warm welcome to foreign visitors and immigrants. Well, that may be true. But a refugee is not an immigrant. They're a refugee. That's why they call them refugee instead of immigrant. And if you're here illegally, you're not an immigrant either. You're an illegal alien. Immigrants go through the immigration service. They follow the immigration laws of the United States of America. That's what an immigrant does, just like the immigrants that came here and built this country. They came through Ellis Island. They didn't crawl across the Mexican border. Man, they need to be, these people need to be fired. You know, hey, the way I look at it is a good. 900 jobs being created. Yeah, let these people go find a job somewhere else, man. Anyway, Trump on Friday signed an executive order that temporarily bans refugees and people from seven Muslim-majority countries sparking turmoil at U.S. airports and protests in major American cities. Ah, here they are, Iran. I, I missed Iran. See, we're not bombing Iran yet. Iraq, Libya, Somalia, up the Sudan, see, we are bombing them. Syria and Yemen, wait a minute, we're bombing Yemen, we're bombing Syria, we're bombing the Sudan, we're bombing Somalia. Well, are we bombing Somalia? Yeah, we did, we just last week, we bombed Somalia. We're bombing Libya, we're bombing Iraq. Okay, so Iran's the only one not getting bombed. Boy, sure don't want to sour relationships with this group, huh? Iran, Iraq, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, and Yemen. Oh my gosh, we don't want to... We don't want to sour our relationship with these fine, upstanding world citizens, sure. 
Even before the executive order on immigration was issued, concern among State Department officials have been growing over news reports that Trump was about to ease sanctions against Russia, said one State Department official, speaking on the condition of anonymity because he's a coward. The resignation of at least four top State Department officials, including Undersecretary for Man Patrick Kennedy, who formerly left the department on Tuesday, also caused some unease among diplomats who worried about a power vacuum. You know, why are they so concerned with easing sanctions against Russia? I mean, isn't it the State Department's job to have diplomatic relations with countries around the world? Isn't that their job? I mean, you know, look, the Pentagon is the blow them up, kill them all part of the uh, government, right? And the State Department's let's talk about it and try to get along part of the government, right? So why would they be so against the president trying to uh, talk it over and get along with another nuclear power, and yet they're all, you know, butthurt about terrorist countries like Yemen and Iraq and the other, the Sudan, come on. There's nothing but violence there. There's no diplomatic, nothing going on in any of those countries. Seems a little upside down and backwards, doesn't it? Sounds like 900 people need to be immediately fired from the State Department. Put an ad in the paper, Donald, come on. Hey, need 900 diplomats, quickly. Communists need not apply. Now, this is what we have to look forward to here in America. If the liberals, which are not liberals, folks, okay, they are communists. They are radical communists, whether they know it or not, because most of them are ignorant and they're stupid as rocks, man. They don't even know what they're doing and why they're protesting, what they're actually calling for. But the people in charge do, because, see, they don't don't need to know. They just need to cash that check and get out on the street and yell and scream. That's all they need to do. But everything they're calling for is part of the worldwide communist revolution. Migrants at war, tensions in Paris, as children are attacked with knives for being too rich. This is what's, this is what's happening here, folks. This is what is going to be happening here. Gangs of, listen to this, Who, who's writing this stuff? Yeah, the Express, Okay. Gangs of, listen, North African youths. Oh, really? Guess what? That's Muslim. Gangs of Muslim North African youths have terrified Chinese migrants amid complaints they have become too rich. Well, (laughs) let me tell you about something here. Uh, You know what? I like Donald Trump so far. I think he's going to be kind of tough on the uh, Muslims. 
because that's all they're going to understand is we got to kill a few hundred thousand of them and then say, listen, you want to keep going or you want to get back? Get back in your tent and shut up. You live where you live. Live the way you want to live. Have fun with your goats and uh, your donkeys over there. But uh, you know what? We don't want to hear another peep out of you. We're coming back here, you see. But, hey, I got I got news for you Muslims, man. If you think Donald Trump is your problem, start screwing with the Chinese. Start screwing with the Chinese and see what happens to you. Because, see, they're not going to take that. You start attacking Chinese people around uh, because they're too rich, uh, you're going to have real problems with the Chinese government. And you're not going to like it. Hey, they roll over their own people with tanks. What do you think they're going to do to you? Hmm? You think they're going to play? Yeah, and you think they're going to care? If anybody says, well, them darn Chinese, boy, they're pretty racist. They already know they're pretty racist. They don't care, okay? Yeah, you're darn right we're racist, and uh, you know what? You just screwed with us, and we don't like it. You know what happens when we don't like something? Yeah. So, keep it up. Go ahead and attack those Chinese. Man, oh man, oh man. Talk about not thinking about something. (laughs) Ah, jeez. All right, well, I'm going to play this song, and we'll be uh, back in a bit.
have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Most people realize their body needs clean water to function properly. Pure is the cleanest water, also known as distilled water. Some frauds pushing fake science and ignorant people repeating their disinformation and half-truths will tell you distilled water leaches minerals from the body. What they fail to tell you is distilled water only attracts and flushes inorganic minerals from your body. These are minerals your body cannot process and can interfere with your proper body functions. Distilled water does flush these inorganic materials from your body and is an effective and natural way to cleanse your body. ABR sells a distiller that distills one gallon every three and a half hours. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com, click on the Superstore, go to the distiller, check the pricing and how to order, and watch the video explaining in detail why distilled water is pure water.
I'm your host, Francis Steffen. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It's Tuesday, January 31st, 2017. Almost 840 out here on the Pacific Time Coast. If that's when it is where you're at, we're live. 541-826-0953. That'll get you on the air, your voice anyway. But if you want, you could go to our website, theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. We have a chat room there. You can participate like they are in there right now. Well, there was some uh, guesses. The first uh, one I didn't expect, you know, it's kind of a, his name's Matt Anderson. And uh, who are you listening to is the name of that song. So, you know, who knows Matt Anderson. But the second one there, somebody in the chat room finally got, after they told me they had no idea, apparently they did have an idea because they got it right. It is Elvis. Elvis does Bob Dylan. Yeah, from 1971. It really was Elvis. And, uh, you know, uh, it's Elvis, so, you know, it's got to be good, right? But it's not one of my favorite versions of that song. I love that song, by the way. But uh, Bob Dylan, I think, probably did one of the better versions of it, seeing, you know, how it's his song, when he was young. Uh, Because I saw him. I thought, I thought, man, this is going to be great, man. This is a song I really like, and, boy, these two people I kind of like a lot. And uh, Bob Dylan and uh, Eric Clapton got together, and uh, it would have been okay, except, boy, I'll tell you, Bob's uh, voice has gotten pretty raggedy, uh, you know, over the years. It wasn't any good to begin with, but now, whoo, baby, you know, I don't know, man. It's tough. It wasn't all that great. Uh you know, I mean, it was good to, it was a nice video to see, but, uh, and, uh, Bob Dylan looked good. I mean, he was dressed nice. He kind of had that Johnny Cash thing going on in, in, you know, the black suit and all that. But, boy, once he started singing, it was like, whoo, wow. <sighs> Somebody help him, you know, uh, sort of thing. But anyway, yeah, who am I to say? <laughs> right? I mean, Bob Dylan, like, he cares what I think. But anyway, Let's get on to some things and stuff, huh? I guess, uh, 
Neil, and I'm not even so sure how to say this, Gorsuch? Okay, here's what the New York Times. I'm telling you, man, these, you know, folks, you really got to, if you are, if you consider yourself a Christian, because, see, as a Christian, you have to be morally conservative. Now, you may be fiscally irresponsible and everything else, uh, or, you know, a liberal, but morally, you have to be conservative. You know, because Christians believe in the Bible, all right? If you don't believe in the Bible, you're not a Christian. You don't believe in Christ, you're not a Christian. You're getting a, you're getting a tie in there, right, between believing in Christ and being a Christian, right? You get that, right? There's a connection? Yeah. And if you don't, then you're not. You know, this is not something you're born into like the Catholics and the Jews think. You know, you you your choice. Here's the deal. Do you believe it? No, then you're not. Yes, then you are. It's easy. Very simple. So as a Christian, you have to be morally conservative. And that doesn't mean you do everything right and you never sin and you're always nice and good and all that stuff. It just means that you recognize, look, we got to have rules and they got to be morally conservative. They got to be based on biblical principles. That's what Christians believe. But here we go. The New York Times. Folks, New York Times, New York Post, you need to not pay these people. Now, I'm not saying don't ever go look at their website, but certainly don't ever subscribe. And if they won't let you look at it, fine, go find it somewhere else. Here's why. This is the headline. Neil Gorsuch, the nominee for a stolen seat. A stolen seat. Now, that's rich, isn't it? That's rich. The scumbag commie liberal so-and-sos murder a Supreme Court justice and then say, oh, the seat's being stolen because, uh, you know, the Republican-controlled Senate wouldn't hear about it until Obama was gone. Gee, yeah, there you go. Hey, wait a minute. We murdered him fair and square. We got away with it, and now you got to give us a liberal commie pinko whatever in the Supreme Court. Huh. Stolen seat. It's been almost a year since Senate Republicans took an empty Supreme Court seat hostage, discarding a constitutional duty. Uh-huh. Man, oh man. Now they say President Trump had a great opportunity to repair some of that damage by nominating a moderate candidate for the vacancy. Really? Was Justice Antony, uh, Antony Scalia, was he a moderate? No. You know, uh, here's I'm skipping a lot of this because it's just idiot nonsense. 
This one says if Judge Gorsuch is confirmed, the court will once again have a majority of justices appointed by Republican presidents, as it has for nearly half a century. For starters, that spells big trouble for public sector labor unions. I'm trying not to burst into tears, okay? Uh, Really? Big trouble for public sector labor unions? Uh, Can I start dancing now? I mean, really? Come on. Really? Big trouble for... (laughs) Yeah, good. Is it big enough trouble to put them out of business and put them all in prison? Is Is it big enough trouble for that? Because if it isn't, that's not the kind of big trouble I'm looking for. I mean, really, folks... This one here is trying to make a point that this is bad. Big trouble for public sector labor unions. Hallelujah! Environmental regulations. Well, look. Some environmental regulations are just plain stupid. Uh, Meanwhile, you know, we have people in the government going, well, you know, you just can't burn any coal. Oh, yeah, and you can't have any wood stoves either. Yeah, you're going to have to buy a uh, $5,000 wood stove in order to burn any wood because, uh, well, you're creating uh, pollution and uh, global warming and, uh, yeah, it's just all around bad and we can do it, so we're doing it. That's stupid. Meanwhile, the same pieces of garbage coming up with crap like that are allowing lead pipes in 1,200 communities in America to go on without being repaired or replaced. Ah, just keep drinking. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about those lead pipes. They'll be fine. Oh, but hey, you know what? Let's throw a fit when the Chinese paint some uh, children's toys with lead paint. Oh, my God, you can't have any lead paint in your house. Oh, hey, you know what? We're going to ban lead weights for fishing, too, because it's just polluting everything. But hey, you know, it's okay. Our military can go around the world shooting up the joint, dropping lead bullets everywhere. Well, that's when we're not using depleted uranium, which is even better than lead. Uh Uh-huh. And get this, and women's access to contraception. This person is an idiot. Nobody nowhere except the Catholic Church, and they backed off of it, says that, oh, you can't have any contraception. I'm sorry, killing a baby is not contraception. Okay? Contraception happens before a baby is created. Once a baby's created, now it's murder. But hey, that ought to get people scared. No contraception. What? Hey, what about that college woman who made a big deal and got her 15 minutes of fame because, why, she threw a fit because... What? I have to pay for my own rubbers for my own boyfriend so I can spread my legs every weekend? What? Well, that's just not fair. Those things cost money, you know. I don't have that kind of money. Well, how about getting you a loser boyfriend to buy his own rubbers, huh? In normal times, Judd Gorsuch, a widely respected and at 49 relatively young judge, with a reliability conservative voting record, would be an obvious choice for a Republican president. 
But these aren't normal times. Of course not, because we're a bunch of little sissy snowflakes and we're upset. So things are not a normal time. Things have to be our way now because we lost the election and by God, you have to play fair now. Really? How's that working out when the uh, Senate, when it was under Democratic control, they said, oh, we don't need a supermajority anymore because, well, we're in charge and uh, we only want 51 and that's the way it is. So, hey, guess what? That rule's still in charge. <laughs> that's a shame, isn't it? Yeah, that's a real crying shame. See, they did that so they could shove Barack Obama nominees through the Senate. And now that Donald Trump has that, they're crying foul. That's not fair. It should be a majority. Oh, really? Except when you're in charge, right? You lying little sack of crap. Uh, and I mean Chuck Schumer, specifically. Little lying sack of crap. Hey, shut up, Chuck. Go in the corner and go have a good cry. Find your safe space. Anyway, listen to this. Uh, let's see. Judge Garland, yes, a former federal prosecutor, 20-year veteran, nation's most important federal appeals court. Oh, really? There's one more important than the other? Moderately more qualified than Judge Gorsuch. Really? Why is that? Because, oh, he's liberal. But that meant nothing to Senate Republicans who abused their power as the majority party. Within hours of Scalia's death, shut down the confirmation process. Oh, well, gee, that's what happens when you're in charge. When you're a Democrat, I'm glad the Republicans are finally catching on. Well, this is just crap. And it goes on and 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 on. And uh, let's see here. I'm trying to find out who actually wrote this tripe because I like to keep track of these people oh it's the editorial board of the New York Times so this represents the New York Times itself hey gee I wonder if the I wonder if the CIA gave them a few hundred million dollars too they must have because you know what these newspapers would be going out of business like as in bankrupt because hey look at how much money they lose look at how many subscribers they've lost look at how far their readership has dropped how do you maintain an operation like they have with that little support well you don't unless you get money from somewhere else I think it's time to audit the New York Times and the Boston Globe we already know the Washington Post has been bought and paid for by the CIA through Amazon. Yeah, big newspaper for sale. $600 million will buy it. Well, it won't buy the newspaper because Bezos owns that. But hey, it'll buy whatever you want. We'll print whatever you like. $600 million bucks. That's what it costs. Man, oh man, oh man. I'll tell you. I don't know what you all think about what uh, Trump's been doing so far. Oh, let's. <laughs> oh, as I just went in in there, you know, into the chat room. Somebody says Slayer. <laughs> Slayer always sounds like Elvis. <laughs> All right. Well. Anyway, so. Uh, the Super Bowl's coming up. And Lady Gagme is going to be doing the halftime show, 
what do you think that's going to be like? Hmm? Oh, yeah, Lady Gagme was a big, I have a vagina, she has a vagina, I'm with her. So what do you think this is going to be like at the Super Bowl? You think she's going to push her liberal crap? Well, folks, I think you should prepare yourself for it and figure out what you're going to do about it. Have your letters ready to go to the NFL to say, you know what, cancel my subscription. Because just telling them, you know what, I'm not watching any more of your stupid games isn't going to, they, they don't care. I mean, yeah, if they got a million of them, they might care. But their ratings, their ratings have been pathetic this year because everybody's sick of their crap, okay? They're sick of their politics. They're sick of their rules. They're sick of their petty little BS in there. Oh, oh, we're going to suspend you for four games because we say you deflated the balls. Who cares? Inflated, deflated, who the hell cares? If it's such a big deal, then do what baseball does. Yeah, each team doesn't get to bring their own baseballs to the baseball game. The league provides them, and the umpires are in charge of the balls. You need one, you get it from the umpire. You don't go to the guy in the back room and go, okay, stay. Hey, hey, put a little extra in that one, would you? But is that what the NFL did? No, they didn't change their rules. Every team still gets to bring their own balls to the game. So how serious are they about it? Not at all. It's just another one of those rules. It's like they tell you, hey, you know, you commit five felonies every day without even knowing it. That's like the NFL. They've got so many rules now that you could break a rule without even knowing it. And when somebody that they hate does, down they come on them. You know what? I am going, and I don't even follow football anymore. Oh, well, I can't say I don't follow it at all. I do go to NFL.com every couple of weeks and check out who won, who's in you know, who's in first, who's on second, you know, that sort of thing. So I do follow it minimally. But if it went away tomorrow, uh, I wouldn't miss it. However, I am rooting for the New England Patriots just because I know that scumbag in charge of the nonprofit 501c3 NFL doesn't like Tom Brady. He doesn't like the owner of the Patriots, and he doesn't like the Patriots. So I hope the Patriots embarrass the Atlanta Falcons. I mean, I hope it's a 65-0 game. And maybe then they can say, well, you know, it's because Tom Brady wore, uh, you know, different colored shoelaces, and it threw off the Atlanta Falcons, and he should be fine for that because it's just not fair. You do realize this whole deflate gate thing the Patriots beat the uh, Indianapolis Colts like 45 to 7 you really think that was because the balls weren't inflated enough or is it somebody didn't have game that day oh but you see that's just too embarrassing the Patriots can't be that good we can't have a team that good because we have parity. We're a league of parity. We're all any team could beat any team on any given Sunday. That's what they like to tell you, but it's not true. For whatever reason, the Patriots have built a better team than anybody in the NFL, and they have for many years. Anywho. 
Uh, let's see here. Oh. So what do you think? You think you think uh, Lady Gagney's going to get up there and, uh, you know, denounce Trump at the Super Bowl like uh, they're hinting at on Drudge? Hmm? You think that could be uh, going to be going on? Well, if it does, folks, really, I will send my email, you know, for whatever it's, whatever it's worth, because I can't really tell them I'm canceling anything because I don't have anything with them. But I will send them my email saying, that's it. I'm not watching any more of your games, and I'm going to tell everybody that I meet how much I hate the NFL. You know, and yeah, my uh, my one little my one little uh, email isn't going to do anything. But you know what? If uh, they get a million of them, eh, could could get their attention then. Get this here. Barstool Sports is a growing destination for sports fans, particularly young and male sports fans. And on Monday, it officially became mainstream when it launched a new show on Comedy Central. But the NFL does not find Barstool Sports amusing. The league pulled Super Bowl week credentials from Barstool Sports employees, forcing them to cancel scheduled appearances on Radio Row, including a a planned spot on PFT Live today. The reason... Four Barstool Sports employees once organized a sit-in at the league offices to protest Roger Goodall's handling of Deflategate. And when they refused to leave, they were arrested. The league said it doesn't credential people who have been involved in such antics. Really? So Roger Goodall, the petty little bastard that he is, is still all about trying to get the Patriots. This guy sucks, man, I'll tell you. Despite the league pulling the outlet's credentials, Barstool Sports' well-known provocateur PFT commentator managed to get in to the Super Bowl opening night where he asked a question of Patriots coach Bill Belichick. So the league wasn't able to completely shut down the site's access to all Super Bowl activities. But the league is keeping Barstool Sports from promoting itself On Radio Row today, that's an extremely unusual step for the NFL to take and one that points to a growing chasm between the old school NFL and the new school media scumbags like Goodall. Man, I tell you, man, this guy makes me sick. I I really hate the NFL anymore. I got to say, as an organization, and that doesn't mean I hate all the players or hate the game or anything like that. I hate the NFL. I am absolutely dedicated to having their 501c3 poll. Why should they have a why should the NFL be a, a non-profit organization? Are you kidding me? Anyway, oh, and if Lady Gagme gets up there and starts uh bad-mouthing the president, hmm, let's see 501c3. I don't think you're allowed to do that. And you know the halftime show is an NFL production. It is not put on by the teams, which are not 501c3, by the way. So you know what? That would be in violation of their agreement with the IRS. Mm-hmm. Well, I guarantee if Lady Gagme pulls that stunt, I will be pointing that out to my congressman. You betcha. Anyhow, I got to go. Thanks for listening, folks.
The political, religious, and medical views presented on various shows heard on American Voice Radio Network are not necessarily the views held by the management of American Voice Radio and are not presented as an endorsement by this network. All statements heard on American Voice Radio are the sole responsibility and opinion of those who speak the particular statement.
and settle huge debts. Traditional bank clearing systems simply could not process the volume of transactions. To solve this problem, German economist Jalmar Schacht masterminded a new bank, the Bank for International Settlements, based in Basel, Switzerland. The BIS, as it was known, would be the central bank to Europe's national banks, such as the Bank of England and Germany's Reichsbank. Together with the Bank of Japan, the great national banks of Europe opened an account at the BIS and settled their debts by gold and credit transfer. For Germany, it would be a mechanism for paying its huge First World War reparations. The BIS was a, uh, a bank set up in 1930 to help transfer reparations. The bank was used to intermediate between the uh, Germans paying reparations and the uh, uh, Allies receiving it. And then it became useful as a club of central bankers in Europe who would get together once a month and, and discuss their common interests. The board of the BIS was made up of member nations who held a share in the bank and was supported by a team of economists. My father, Per Jacobson, was appointed as economic advisor. This was a revolutionary step. Central banks didn't have economists on them in those days. As a young economics student in Basel, Erin Jacobson came to know BIS board members as friends of the family, including one of the most important, Montague Norman, governor of the Bank of England. Norman was also a close personal friend of Jalmar Schacht. Both used instinct, as did my father. Their economics was based on the instinct they had, and they sort of knew what was around the corner. They had the same job, and you know, if someone has much the same job as you do, you can talk to them in a different way to some outsider. Well, I can't remember ever hearing that there's been something that had caused more than slight discussion. They were on the same sort of line through thick and thin. In 1933, Hitler became Chancellor of Germany. He appointed Schacht as head of the Reichsbank and Nazi representative at the BIS. Hitler said of Schacht, it was his consummate skill at swindling other people which made him indispensable at the time. After all, seeing that the whole gang of financiers is a bunch of crooks, what possible point was there in being scrupulously honest with them? Before each meeting of the International Bank of Basel, half the world was anxious to know whether Schacht would attend or not. It was only after the assurance that he would be there that the Jew bankers of the entire world packed their bags and prepared to attend. In spite of his ability, I could never trust Schacht, for I had often seen how his face lit up when he succeeded in swindling someone out of a hundred mark note. Schacht, of course, was a complicated uh, fellow. He was sometimes being a central banker, sometimes being a, a Nazi, sometimes being an anti-Nazi. If you read his work, he's all, all over the place. 
It was Sharp's job to arrange finance for the building of the Third Reich. The BIS channeled investments from the Allied powers into Germany for the expansion of her economy. Although after 1933 there were no new investments, existing investments were renewed annually and paid into Hitler's Reich. By 1939, 294 million gold-Swiss francs had been channeled into the German economy. Schacht's economic priority became the rearmament of Germany. Wall Street at that time on the part of the new Democratic Party which formed itself around Roosevelt. It was the first time in some years that the Secretary of the Treasury had not been a banker. Morgenthau was loyal to the President to an nth degree and they had a remarkably close personal relationship but um, he uh, didn't understand the uh, intricacies of international finance uh, foreign exchange the principal concern of everybody was getting out of the depression the international fear of a war coming in Europe was was there in some people but it was not a predominant feeling uh, in uh, political circles but Morgenthau was always watching American trade with Germany even though he was a, a political person uh, I believe in many cases his principles came first uh, as, as far as Nazi Germany was concerned uh, uh, Nothing uh, moved him more deeply than his hatred of uh, Nazi Germany because of what it stood for. Morgenthau felt uh, that uh, we shouldn't cooperate in any way with a country of that kind. For I don't think this ever occurred to people who, who dealt with them, uh, in terms of. When in the spring of 1938 the Nazis annexed Austria, Morgenthau's fears that the BIS could be used as a tool of imperialism proved right. One of Germany's first acts was to demand that the gold held in Austria's name at the BIS be transferred to the vaults of Hitler's Reichsbank. The BIS, a servant of its central banks, dutifully transferred 22 tons of gold. They were interested in maximizing the profits of their commercial banks, carrying out financial policies and economic policies of uh, their countries. They probably didn't think it was in their province uh, to... Uh, guided in any way uh, by uh, the nature of the country that they were dealing with. 
16th of March, 1939, Montague Norman was still espousing the virtues of the BIS. The BIS, whose monthly meetings in Switzerland provide invaluable opportunities of contact, started in the difficult times of 1930, but already has fully shown its worth and will surely prove it in the future. occupying Czechoslovakia. Again, the Nazis demanded Czechoslovakia's gold, just as they had done with Austria's. But this time, there was a problem. Much of Czechoslovakia's gold had been shipped to a safe haven, the Bank of England. Unfortunately, some of it was in a BIS account at the bank. Nazis wanted to take over the Czech gold to bolster their foreign income. I was told the governor and his senior colleagues were had up at pistol point and said, if you don't authorize this uh, transshipment of the gold, um, you've had it. Directors of Czechoslovakia's National Bank were ordered to contact the BIS and demand that their BIS gold be transferred to the Reichsbank. Because the gold was in England, the BIS called Britain's Central Bank and informed Montague Norman at the Bank of England of the Czech instruction. Like the BIS, Norman saw no way of stopping the transfer. But by the rules of the BIS, Montague Norman had the power to delay the transfer if he did so by the end of the day, when all banking transactions had to be completed. But Norman took no action, and six million pounds worth of gold was credited to the Reichsbank. When the Bank of England's actions became known, they caused uproar in the Houses of Parliament. The Bank of England, after what has happened, may no longer be looked upon as the safest place in the world, and the phrase, safe as the Bank of England, may no longer apply. The Bank for International Settlements is the bank which sanctions the most notorious outrage of this generation, the rape of Czechoslovakia. In Washington, Morgenthau and his team tried to piece together the Czech gold affair. The Treasury had a lot of information and contacts uh, coming in from these five or six top Treasury people in the embassies. The one in London, whose name was Buttermer Butterworth, was, knew everybody in the banking community in London and knew his business and uh, his reports were important. Well, you've read Butterworth's cable on Czech gold. When you boil it all down, this is what I get out of it. That almost six million pounds of BIS gold was transferred. It's of interest to us because a year ago we took the position that might happen and we didn't want to deal with the BIS. Well, it's a dirty business, whichever way you look at it. By that summer, Europe was preparing for war. In 
Basel, the BIS took its own actions to protect itself and appointed a neutral to head its bank. An American banker based in London, Thomas McKittrick. Mr. McKittrick came from Lee Higginson in London. He did tell me how much he enjoyed life in London, uh, where he had a maid who ironed his pajamas every night, uh, and I think he had the butler warm the uh, Times uh, before he read it, but uh, that's life of the upper classes in London, I guess. I think he was uh, regarded as somebody who was a placeholder. You put a man who's A, an American, a neutral, uh, B, just trying to uh, keep the place uh, alive. McKittrick was a lawyer, not an economist. And his main job was keeping the bank intact as an institution. He was uh, an expert on flowers. And uh, he and I used to go walking in the mountains, and he taught me about botany. I knew nothing. I became quite a little expert. <laughs> he had a quiet sense of humor, but he was, you know, all that you'd expect an uncle to be. With the invasion of Poland, war in Europe broke out. Bank looted their gold, giving Hitler more money for more weapons, for more war. Some of that gold found its way to the BIS. Rougemont, 
100 miles from Basel. A friend of his owned the castle, and McKittrick had permission to use it. I went and counted the number of beds in the servants' wing, and there were 22. And we had a staff of six plus one chauffeur. During the war, enemy nationals were ordered not to fraternize. But at the BIS, old friendships died hard. A technical show was made of keeping the Allies on one side and the Germans on the other side, but of course it never worked out. They just sort of mixed up and walked across the room and said, Now, Hans, how did you get on when you were doing and had your new baby come and all these things? And, you know, you wouldn't have known a war was on. Even after America's entry into the war in December 1941, McKittrick's presidency of the bank went unchallenged by Nazi officials. More disturbingly, reports were coming through to Washington that Montague Norman and his good friend, Yalmar Schaff, now Reich's minister without portfolio, were making contact about a separate peace. On July the 25th, 1942, Roosevelt cabled Churchill. I think the Prime Minister should know that from a Madrid source, word is being sent that Montague Norman is establishing contacts with Schacht with regard to peace feelings. Winston Churchill to Eden, 26th of July. Foreign Secretary, I cannot believe such a thing. That either you should see him or I. Eden to Churchill, 29th of July. Prime Minister, I have seen Montague Norman, who states emphatically that he has had no communication of any kind with Schacht for more than a year. Churchill to Eden, 31st of July. Foreign Secretary, we have been at war for over two and three quarter years. Can he extend his assurance to cover the whole period? No assurance to Churchill appears in the file. Nevertheless, Eden cabled Washington, insisting that no contact had taken place between Schacht and Norman during the war. Without documentation, it isn't possible to know definitely whether they were in touch. Meanwhile, in public, McKittrick went through the facade of addressing the annual meetings of the BIS in an empty boardroom to prove that the BIS board was not sitting in time of war. But away from the public gaze, McKittrick maintained contact with the board members and Nazi, Italian, Japanese and British staff of the BIS continued to meet and do business. Throughout the war, Germany was drawing dividends on its investments in the bank, including those of some of the countries it had conquered. It has been said that foreign exchange control is like sex. It's a very difficult thing to enforce. Uh, and I suppose you could go to another level and say that where an obvious profit exists anywhere, it's very difficult to prevent people from taking advantage of it. There's a drive beneath for sex, for profit. The 
staff of the BIS also enjoyed travel privileges courtesy of the Axis powers. In 1942, BIS President Thomas McKittrick set off for the United States. Astonishingly, he returned in May 1943 via Rome with the permission of the fascist authorities, despite the fact that Italy was at war with his native America. My father went up to Sweden. Oh, I think that was about 43. He went through Germany, and of course he always thought, uh, Mr. Poole, the Reichsbank, he asked Poole to let him go to England, and Poole said, oh, yes, do go to England. In fact, it would be very good for the BIS if you did. Poole was definitely for keeping relations with the central banks as intact as possible. He certainly sent messages to Norman through my father, saying, I hope you're all right and that, you know, you haven't been robbed out or something like that. American intelligence also later indicated that Poole met with McKittrick to discuss attitudes in America towards Germany and that McKittrick even traveled to Germany in 1943. The apparent closeness of the BIS's relationship with the Axis powers was viewed with alarm by a growing team of U.S. Treasury investigators. When I went to work there in the fall of 42, there may have been 14, 20 lawyers and about 100 investigators and maybe 100 auxiliary personnel. And it ended up in a, a, a very large outfit of two or 3,000 people. We were, I guess, very idealistic people. We felt that when young men and women were risking their lives being killed in the mud in Italy, they deserved better from the folks at home and from their government. The British Treasury took a different view on the BIS. The Bank of England was continuing to receive interest from the Reichsbank on pre-war investments in Germany through the BIS. Now the Nazis had the looted gold from occupied Europe to help make the payments. In the summer of 1944, Edward Playfair defended Britain's position. Nothing has happened to make us change our views, which are wholly different from those of the United States Treasury. It seems to me important that we should not just sit back and appear to accept their view as the right one. I saw it estimated that Axis Europe was paying around £760,000 a year in interest to the BIS and getting one-third of it back as dividends. We get the rest. Fair's approach may have made sense from a pragmatic point of view, but the U.S. Treasury took a stronger moral line. They objected to any institution that aided the Germans in any way. Anything that we could do to, to discredit an institution which cooperated with Germany uh, was, was something the Treasury uh, wanted to support. 
1944, the U.S. Treasury had a massive dossier detailing the collaborative activities of the BIS. And when the Norwegian government in exile made a formal protest about the BIS's activities, Morgenthau was ready to make his move. At Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, delegates from 44 allied and associate countries arrived for the opening of the United Nations Monetary and Financial Conference. They will work in the seclusion of this White Mountains resort. The Norwegians uh, had a good deal of information, and it was they who introduced the resolution at the Bretton Woods Conference that the BIS should be shut down uh, as soon as possible. Morgenthau was, was, was impressed with this. He had talked to the Norwegians, and he was uh, uh, impressed and convinced uh, that this was a desirable resolution. But not all the delegates at Bretton Woods were so convinced. Representing the view of the Bank of England and British Treasury, economist Maynard Keynes went to see Morgenthau and in an off-the-record meeting argued that the BIS should not be closed down since the bank would be needed for post-war reconstruction. Keynes wanted to delay it. He wanted to keep this organization which the European bankers and central bankers thought was very valuable. Morgenthau felt that he had convinced Keynes that the BIS ought to be shut down, but Keynes had some reservations as to how to do it and what the resolution should read. Keynes persuaded Morgenthau that the BIS should be closed only after the war had ended. While the debate over the BIS raged at Bretton Woods, the tide of war had turned against the Nazis. Allied troops had invaded Northern Europe. Within 11 weeks, they had taken Paris. Harsh treatment was meted out to the Parisians who had collaborated with the enemy. But when Morgenthau sent a treasury agent to Paris with the liberating forces, he discovered unpleasant truths about the extent of the collaboration. In December 1944, a report arrived on his desk about the activities of the Paris branch of the Chase, one of the biggest banks in America. The Chase Paris showed itself most anxious to please the German authorities in every possible way. For example, the Chase zealously maintained the account of the German embassy in Paris, as every little thing helps. The whole objective of the Chase policy and operation was to maintain the position of the bank at any cost. I recommend that this investigation should be pressed urgently, and additional personnel be sent to Paris ASAP. Treasury agent Marjorie Farber was assigned to investigate the Chase Bank. It had been requested by the Treasury that Chase make available all its correspondence with Paris, and I was sent there to look at it. There had been some rumors about the Chase Bank cooperating with the German industry, so perhaps that was the reason why, but anyway, that was what I was supposed to look into, whether there was anything behind it or not. In the course of her investigations, Marjorie Farber discovered a worrying truth. In 1941, decrees were announced in France, restricting the freedom of Jews. 
the Chase Paris took a controversial measure. They jumped the gun. They, they broached the question, well, if that's the case, perhaps we shouldn't let the, the depositors, who are Jewish, uh, who deposit in Paris, we shouldn't let them take their money out either. These measures taken against Jews by the Chase Palace occurred while America was at peace with Germany. A later report contextualized the actions of the Chase Palace, saying that the Chase had received a notice of the freezing of Jewish assets and believed the freeze was legally binding. The same report also confirmed that a leading member of staff of the Chase Palace had made the most of his opportunities of being nice to the German officials. U.S. Treasury investigations also cited other banks in France as having cooperated with the Nazis. One of the banks, I don't remember whether it was Westminster or Barclay, they asked the administrator appointed by the German government whether they should keep the Jewish employees. Maybe they should throw them out or get rid of them one, one way or another. And his answer was, I really don't care. He's go by French regulations. I have none. Now, they didn't have to ask that, obviously. The intention was certainly to make a good impression. In fact, a report by Faber names both Westminster and Barclays employees acting beyond the control of their London offices as having volunteered that they had Jewish staff to the Germans. But there is no mention in the report that they took action against Jewish assets as early as the chase. was doing, 
but even without full proof, the U.S. Treasury was convinced that the BIS uh, was assisting the Germans in this process, even down to uh, uh, looting the, the Holocaust victims, uh, the teeth and, what, and gold watches and whatnot. American intelligence reports show that the BIS permitted transfers of Nazi gold as late as April 1945. Though no evidence exists that the BIS knew the source of the gold or whether it was concentration camp loot, proof that two BIS directors handled the spoils of the Holocaust was to emerge. March 1945, Morgenthau sent an investigator to Basel to question McKittrick. I thought you would be interested in the attached memorandum of my conversation with McKittrick in Switzerland. I was surprised that a voluntary recital intended as a defense of the BIS could be such an indictment of that institution. I asked McKittrick why, in his opinion, the Germans had been willing to allow the BIS to run in the manner which he had described. McKittrick's explanation was as follows. There's a little group in Germany who do not share the Nazi point of view, but who are so important to the Nazis and the management of German finances that they would continue to hold important positions. I asked McKittrick, would he name any of this little group? The only person he named was Poole. Please state uh, your full name. Emil Johann Rudolf Uhl. The following year, BIS director and Reichsbank vice president Emil Poole was tried and convicted of crimes against humanity for his involvement in laundering the gold of murdered Jews from the concentration and death camps. Then I Mexican and I listen them. Killing firsthand was not his thing. He was tried primarily for two activities. One was handling the deposit of some of the grisly uh, byproducts of the concentration camps, gold teeth, gold watches, gold pens, gold spectacle cases taken from newly created corpses in the concentration camps. The Reichsbank had vaults full of this stuff, small mountains, really. The second activity was making funds readily available to the SS4 concentration camp building. And Poole, in order to make sure that the state wasn't investing its money foolishly, toured the concentration camps and made sure that they were doing what they were supposed to do. Also tried and convicted was BIS director and Reichsbank president, Walter Funk. That you as the head of the Reichsbank would not know. You wouldn't know that. Would you know about the 1,000 wagons of textiles that this SS man said were, had been shipped? Or warehousing composed of the clothing of dead Jews who'd been exterminated? In the course of the trials, some other intriguing evidence came to light. Well, I can recall a Dresdner Bank document, which I thought was interesting, which listed American bankers favorable to the German cause. I think that was practically the heading of the document. It was a who's who of American bankers. And the chase was definitely on that list. Oh, yes, the chase was on the list. That was one of the things that caught my eye. 
As the war drew to a close, Morgenthau had begun to receive reports on Nazi plans for a resurrection of Germany after her defeat, financed by investments in America and other neutral countries. His suspicions about Germany reinforced, he completed a plan which was to remain his notorious footnote in history. The position of Morgenthau and White were that you shouldn't allow Germany to be reindustrialized. Germany should become a cabbage patch. You could have small shops with and, and, uh, and grow, um, grow crops, but never become uh, an industrial power again. Morgenthau's plan was rejected, and in April 1945, he lost his greatest protector. After the death of President Roosevelt, Morgenthau resigned from public office, and his investigations into the banks and their collaboration with the Nazis were wound down. outstanding bankers in Germany and wishes to proceed to the United States on the invitation of several well-known American bankers to participate in discussions of some importance. Documents that might show whether Poole entered the United States remain classified. 
they were going to be on the right side no matter what happened. Banking is banking. And that these fellows were interested in, 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 in having a nice, peaceful relationship. German, British, didn't matter to them. A nice, peaceful relationship with everybody making money. Those who fought the bankers did not fare so well. Our American way of life, which has flourished under our republic, and the war against Nazism was over. The war against communism had just begun. forces of communism. These red fascists distort, conceal, misrepresent, and lie to gain their point. Deceit is their very essence. Harry Dexter White, Morgenthau's second-in-command, was accused of being a communist. He suffered a fatal heart attack whilst under investigation in 1948. White was only one person on whom self-confessed communist agents in... Other members of Morgenthau's team were also accused, and his administration became tainted with communism. were full conspirators. They were all given a, a terrible thrashing by the House on American Committee and years later by McCarthy. Mr. Morgan, though, I think, felt betrayed. And, of course, I would... Um, I was so saddened to see him in the last years of this very great and prominent life in which he had... Um, earned so many kudos. I was very sad to see him feel that way, and I would say, oh, they never proved anything about this one, and they never proved anything about that one. Uh, it's just that all of these poor people, some of whom were the most brilliant economists in the world, um, their lives were destroyed. Morgenthau spent the last years of his life building up an archive to preserve the truth for future generations. Do the clues to Hitler's tyranny lie in his formative years? Sky Digital viewers can press the red button now and find out more. Did drugs, alcohol and paranoia fuel the presidency of Richard Nixon? His secret life exposed on UK TV history next. Okay. I am Madeline Brown. I met Lyndon Johnson in 1948 and had a 21-year relationship with him. I had a son by him, Stephen Brown, that passed away be 10 years this month. Um, we had a beautiful relationship, and even today, as I talk about him, my toenails still turn up, <laughs> okay? Oh, uh, where do you want me to go from here? <laughs> uh, well, tell me a little bit about uh, your... Uh your family history a little bit. Oh, my family? Yes. I was raised or reared by the most wonderful parents that anyone could have. They were really orthodox Christians, and they lived totally by the Ten Commandments. 
they were, uh, I'm sure my father gave away as much as we had in our home. And even to this day, there's a mission that Mother Teresa established in, let's see, what year was it? And where I, our home, our homeland. And I still support it. Uh, but where I grew up, and I've often said that this mission is, is just a living on of what my father, what he did in the old Trinity Heights area. Okay, uh, now let's talk about uh, the events surrounding uh, John Kennedy's uh, assassination. Uh, what, uh, what do you know happened just prior to the uh, assassination? Why don't we go back to 1960 <clears throat> okay. at the cool. Democrat Convention in California. And this came back first-handed from John Currington, that was an aide to H.L. Hunt. Um, when they met in California, Joe Kennedy, John Kennedy's father, and H.L. Hunt met three days prior to the election. Um, they, uh, they finally cut a deal, according to John Currington, and H.L. finally agreed that Lyndon would go in the second or as a vice president. I know there's been lots of talk about this, but this came from the horse's mouth way back in 1960. And when H.L. came back to Dallas, I was walking up uh, Irby Street, which I did almost daily with him, and he made the remark, we may have lost a battle, but we're going to win a war. And then the day of the assassination, he said, well, we won the war. It, it was a total political thing, a political crime, and H.L. Um, Hunt really controlled what actually happened to John Kennedy, he and Lyndon Johnson. Uh, well, let's talk about the uh, the planning of the assassination before it happened. Uh, didn't it go well, back it, about a year or so before? Oh, it, it, uh, it, it started after the... Uh, the convention, H.L. Hunt didn't let it rest. He immediately, they went to mapping a, a plan out of, or a plot, how to get rid of John Kennedy. Uh, they were just in total disgust with John Kennedy. Well, where did they meet to, to hold these discussions? H.L. Uh, Hunt had, of course, property everywhere, but they had this lodge up close to, it was outside of Dallas. And they would meet there, and they uh, he chose different people to to do certain things for him. And uh, I, I'm sure it went on about two years prior to the assassination of John Kennedy. About where was this lodge? The best I recall, it was north of Dallas, and it was on a well, it's over by a creek. It was very scenic, and it was very secluded. And you really had to be invited there yeah. because it, you wouldn't know how to get there. Did you go out there with Hunt? I, I have been there, but uh, it was for a social rather than any planning of the assessment. No, I, I know you were not invited in the planning, but no. I mean socially. Socially, yes. Okay. I'm sure I'm one of few people in Texas that was socialized with all the high rollers. And again, we called them the 8F group. They, um, it was uh, 
fraternity among these people. Let's talk about the 8F group. What do you mean by 8F? What does that mean? Uh, it was, the best I recall, it was their room number at the Lamar Hotel in Houston. And they would meet there for various things, but mostly for gambling and, and making, cutting business deals. Who were the members of the 8F group? Uh, they had to be the great white fathers of Texas. Primarily it was your your oil people, your your high rollers. Uh, by name, who do you? Oh, there was George and Herman Brown were probably the biggest of all of them. And Hunt, Clint Murkison, Sid Richardson, uh, Again, all the, big, uh, the the finance. I guess that's what I'm looking for. I mean, for. was Hoffines there? Uh, Judge Hoffines. Judge Hoffines. Yes, he was part of that group. Uh, John. And Connelly. occasionally, yeah, John Conley. Occasionally, uh, uh, our FBI director, J. Edgar Hoover, would appear there. He hobnobbed with those people, and particularly Clint. That's an interesting subject. Tell me more about the relationship of uh, J. Edgar Hoover and H.L. Hunt and Sid Richardson and Clint Murchison. What, what do you know about uh, that? Well, the first time I met uh, J. Edgar Hoover, I was at the Driscoll Hotel. I had met Lyndon probably six weeks or so before, and we were dancing there in the Driscoll, and uh, I looked up and I saw J. Edgar Hoover and his companion, uh, and Clint was the Sid Richardson. Yep. Tolson. I beg your pardon. Was named Tolson. Yeah. And I remembered from the 30s the G-Man series. So I said to Lyndon, I said, "Isn't that the G-Man?" That's what I called him, you know. Yeah. And he said, "Little girls shouldn't have such big uh, eyes and no ears." And he said, "You forget what you saw." But I met him that night. Yes. Were you around when uh, Ed Hoover was with Hunt or Richardson or Murchison? Or well, they were, they were at the party the night before the assassination. All the high rollers in Texas were at Clint's the night before the assassination. Okay, let's uh, let's talk about that, that meeting at uh, Murchison's house. Uh, when, when did that happen? It was the night before the assassination on Thursday night. At uh, November the 21st, 1963? Yes. Okay. About what time did it start? Well, I was called and told me that they were having the social, and of course I was ready to go to any social. I think I must have gotten there around 8, and um, the party was breaking up probably 10, 30, 11, maybe, May, I guess it was 11, and uh, uh, we were all stunned when Lyndon came in. What time did he come in? It must have, well, he came from Houston. It must have been around 11 o'clock. The party was breaking up mm -hmm. at that time, and it, it shocked everyone that... Uh, he came in. Of course, I was thrilled to see him. Normally, I knew his agenda when he was in Texas, but that night I did not know that he was coming. And they all went into this conference room. Who called a meeting? Uh, Clint did. Clint. Yeah. He's, what, what did he say? He says, "Come on, boys. You know, I thought they were going in gamble because they gamble, you yeah. know, so much." Okay. But the, the meeting didn't last, or Lyndon didn't stay that much in the meeting. And when he came out, 
He, uh, I thought he was going to say something yeah, uh, sweeter. First of all, where, what part of the house was the meeting in? It was in their conference room, and of course the home was huge. They yeah. had uh, the social was out, well, the best I recall, in the library area. Uh-huh. But he had a conference room. Oh, he had a conference room. They all did. Okay. Now let's talk about who you know were in that meeting. Well, my, in the private meeting. Yeah. One of my very best friends that dates way back to the 40s, a George W. Owens, one of the most colorful persons that anyone could know. And to show you how colorful he was, uh, he would hang around Jack Ruby, and he would the Abe Weinstein was right next door. And George was courting Candy Bar, and I know the name Candy Bar rings a bell. Anyway, when she got, uh, I guess you'd use the word busted, for marijuana, George was with her, and it caused a big, big scandal. But from there, he, uh, of course, he played uh, varsity basketball for SMU. And there we had Joe Campisi. These people are, is a real close-knitted group of people. So through the years, George identified with Clint Murkison. He, I don't know how many business that he uh, he was involved with. And you'd see Clint and said you'd often see George. Well, what was uh, George Owen's job with uh, Clint? With Clint, it was various uh, businesses that they were involved in. There was some building and, and some oil, and but George had such a wonderful personality. I can envision him how he got involved with Clint Marcus. And okay, now what what was his involvement with that meeting that night? He was there socially, and and of course Jack Ruby had brought one of the call girls to the meeting. I don't who know. was she? The the call girl. Yeah. I've been told her her name was Shirley. I know her, uh-huh. but she doesn't want to talk about this. Okay. Uh, well, now I knew the girl. Yeah, but you you said earlier something about uh, George Owens had picked up somebody at the airport, or yeah, he did the day of on Thursday. Uh-huh. Of course, Dallas didn't have the big metropolitan airport. It was Lovefield, very small. Right. So he went out to Lovefield and he picked up John J. McCloy and uh, Jagger Hoover. Uh, it seems like Pierre Charles Cabell was with that group, the best I remember. Of course, there was a lot of, you know, problems there. Mm-hmm. Who else did uh, George Owens pick up at airport? Those were the ones that George said that he uh, recalled picking up and taking them to Clint. Uh, now, who, who picked up Nixon? Nixon was already in town. Okay. He came in on Tuesday and met with Lyndon that no one knew anything about. Yeah. But Lyndon met Nixon in Dallas on Tuesday. Where did they meet? I'm not sure uh, exactly where their meeting was, but I do know they met. But uh, Nixon was staying where? He was in one of the local hotels, the, the Adolphus, as I recall. Okay. Well, did uh, did any of them spend the night there at uh, Murkerson's house? Well, I'm sure they did. They had the facilities to do so. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's now let's talk about the people that 
that you recall were were in that private meeting. Uh, let's go over them one by one. Okay. Uh, who, who do you recall were, were at well, Of course, meetings? the ones that I remember the most were Jagger Hoover, McCloy, Hunt, H.L. Hunt, uh, John Currington that was always with Hunt was there, and uh, George Brown, Brown and Ruth. I'd have to look at a list. It's been so long. Okay, I've, here's a list. Do you want to go over that list uh, to see if any of them ring a bell to you? Well, let's see. I've already named Clint Hunt. Lyndon came in. McCloy, Nixon, Eamon Carter. Eamon uh, G. Carter, Jr.? Yeah, he. Uh, Eamon used to say he wouldn't be caught alive or dead in Dallas, and yet his son died in Dallas, yeah. Texas. Well, let's just go over the list, and then we'll talk, we'll talk about them one by one. Of course, George Brown, Earl Cabell, the mayor. Uh, I do not recall seeing R.L. Thornton, but he was usually there. B.R. Sheffield, John Connolly was where there was one of the Democrats they usually were close by. Right. Uh, Joe Yarber. Now, Raph Yarber was one that I knew better than anyone, but Raph did not get along with Lyndon. Uh, Raph used to say that was the, well, I can't use the profanity, right. <laughs> but that it was, he was bad news. Okay. And W.O. Bankston, he was usually always around. You know, W.O. was a real colorful person, too. Yeah. Well, let's, we'll go into details with him. Okay. Let's go over this. Jagger Hoover, I have said. Clint Peoples. Bill Decker, the sheriff of uh, it's Dallas County. Cliff Carter was... Uh, I'd known Cliff. As a matter of fact, Cliff and Billy Saul were friends. And Billy Saul... Lyndon is one that introduced me to Billy Saul. Yeah. You told me we'd discuss this. Yeah. And Malcolm Wallace. Malcolm E. Wallace. I've known him since hmm, prior to the uh, problems in Austin. And the uh, Mafia, Carlos Marcello. Marcellus? Yeah, Marcellus, I think. And I always called him Joe Savella. Uh -huh. How do you pronounce it? That's. Joseph Vello is the way I'd pronounce it. Well, he was the head honcho in, in okay. Dallas. Jack Ruby, yeah, he's an old buddy. I've known Jack a long time. Larry Campbell. Okay. Okay. Now let's uh, let's go over these one by one and, and just tell me what you know about them. You mean personally? Personally. Uh, Clint Markson, tell me what you know about Clint. Well, Clint, I had known, uh, I, I guess, early since the 48th. And Clint, of course, was a multimillionaire. And how he got his start, and he often talked about it, in Washington. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.